Okay, mate, 40 here. Let's see how this show goes. We're doing it on the road. Here is Frost talking on decoding. Do they have any status or anything that they've really accomplished in their lives? Martial arts super appeals to them because at least they can beat their chest and puff it out and pursue some sort of status by having the illusion of being a tough guy or a badass. And that's what they sell, period, in the martial arts in general, except for the kids. And then that's like self-discipline and that kind of nonsense. But uh, so, yeah, I think all the, if you'll allow me to use the term, uh, evolutionary hooks are there and they're exploited in the exact same way that a lot of the stuff that you're seeing today, a lot of the gurus are exploiting. And it's just, yeah, they're, they're the, the glitches in the system that you can't, the, the, the things that you're, Whoa, that, that you, you have inherent that people are taking advantage of to sell their bullshit. Yeah. So that's an interesting comparison, isn't it? Between. Okay. So this is uh, Matt Brown, Chris Cavanaugh on decoding the gurus. So Frost describes himself as the world's most dangerous nerd, not only an expert in the fighting arts, but also no slouch when it comes to combating BS. He identifies as a soldier, a scientist, and as a show for big reality. And he's got a website called bullshido.net and a podcast called The Art of Fighting BS. Right? The, the martial arts field and more the health and wellness. And there's a bit of overlap, of course, with the health and you know, supplements and right. improving one's body. And the thing that our last guest emphasized to us was this sort of streak of individualism and almost narcissism that is sometimes present in the health and wellness communities. Because they're very much against things like vaccinations or community-wide stuff, and they're really into personal things that you can buy to maximize your own personal thing. Wait, are you saying that I'm muted? No, I'm coming through loud and clear. So uh, we'll see if uh, there's too much background noise. The the cicadas are out and loud in uh, Tanim Sands, but... Here's a little bit more on Bushido. Is that the same kind of appeal that underlies the bullshit in the martial arts space? Yeah, I would think that on, on one level, it's appealing to a, a sort of a, an image that you want to pro- promote, like rugged, individualist, masculine in, in a lot of cases, because, you know, overwhelming people that participate in martial arts are men and are looking for that badass angle. And so if you defer to someone else's expertise then some people take that as a, a ding against themselves. Okay, blessings. Elliot Black. How are you, sir? Blessings. Blessings, 40. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. How are you, my friend? Doing all right. Bit of a weird day, but uh, doing all right. Yeah. Well, you, you think you've got a weird day. I am doing this, on, let's say, doing this show on Anissa's bed, on my knees, pink stuff all around me. Uh, my, my cam is is very delicately balanced being held on by a lamp and on top of my laptop. So I can't really type on my laptop or I'll send my cam haywire, but enough about me. How are you? That's, that's is your commitment to streaming. Yes. We're, we're all very impressed. We're all grateful. I could have been out there doing manual labor, mate, and making $40 an hour. But uh, frankly, I'm tired, man. I, all sorts of muscles are sore and tired. I haven't done manual labor for 30 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm very curious to hear about your experience. And uh, I bet you your insomnia problems are a matter of for historians. Um, well, I, I'm not sure about that because um, like a lot of 
you know, my sleeping is in unfamiliar on an unfamiliar space bed, you know, everything mm. like that. So, um, mm. so, so still, still struggling a bit with the insomnia, but, uh, you know, when you're, when you're in a completely new space, then, uh, then <laughs> like at home, I've got, you know, the setup, I've got the, you know, the angled bed, I've got the CPAP machine. I've got a lot of mm. things that I don't have here. So, you got an artificial lung go yeah, in the back. I've got an artificial lung. <laughs> I, I've got the the blood of an eleven year old, you know, just constantly being streamed into <laughs> my system. Uh, so, are you doing like heavy lifting, or I mean, if that's yeah. that episode uh, a one off, or is that a, a big part of your day, like real heavy lifting? It's a moderate part of my day. So, yeah. I, I mean, one day I carried about three ton, all told. So, um, but I'm, I'm doing a lot of light work as well. I'm, I'm out there with the, with the garden hose and stuff like that. So it's a mix, but it just feels like every muscle I've got is, is tired and tight and sore. Mm. So I'm, I'm taking a day off from the manual labor. Uh, do you have now, do you have access to like a hot tub or can you go swimming or something like yeah, that? Yeah. I, I go swimming. Couples? Like the, the water yeah. is about temperature. It's like 80 degrees in the ocean. But I mean, so, people think swimming like does something for tired, sore muscles, but just makes my muscles more tired and more sore. Because frankly, I haven't done much swimming in the last ten years. Yeah, but even just soaking, can you just kind of wade and soak in the salt? And, yeah, yeah, I know? do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, there's no way around it. Your muscles have to recover. And, uh, reminds me of uh, Office Space. You see, <laughs> did you see Office Space? No, I haven't. <laughs> you haven't seen that movie? Oh, no. it's too bad. So I'll give you a quick thumbnail. This guy's sort of in IT, you know, and he goes through all these travails. At the end of it, he leaves it and works on a construction site. That's the very thumbnail view. of uh, It's the quick synopsis. But he ends up going back to construction because he just found it, you know, a bit more honest, like the honest labor, like you're doing. Yeah, I'm not like super enthused about honest labor i, I guess i, I prefer you know, <laughs> dishonest labor well dishonest uh, intellectualism oh, <laughs> my or office work you know yeah i prefer office work i'm not really into manual labor i mean my brother loves it but, and i know many people do but don't you find office work just soul killing them after a while? No, it, it depends. Like if I'm doing something dishonest or illegal or something, I'd be ashamed to tell people. But no, um, but just the basic things of just pushing papers and writing emails and filling out spreadsheets. And well, all that kind I, I'm of... like I'm writing documents and editing documents and and mm. you know researching and that I find uh, I enjoy that. I love you know. I love looking up uh, information and I enjoy digesting it and putting it into a uh, good readable form. Hmm. But you, you, you find office work soul destroying. I do, especially when it's conducted in an actual office. Now it's another thing when you're working from home, but actually going to an office with the, with the windows sealed shut and, you know, breathing air conditioned air and, doing these like kind of semi-repetitive tasks, you know, uh, and, and, and just the, the complete absence of physical exertion, it all just turns into, it just, I don't know, it, uh, 
a certain type of very vague frustration just builds up. And it feels uh, just feels bad, man. I don't know. Well, what if your office work was simply preparing for the Luke Ford show? I mean, would you would you find that soul destroying? And then coming on the show every day, like, what if you're able to make a living doing what we're doing right now? It's a good question. I mean, it would be certainly more entertaining, but I, I think it'd be one of those things where you'd put together like a real peak, a real good episode, like the Jim Goat extravaganza of 2018, right? Mm-hmm. A real epic production. And then after that, every show after that that you're working on can never really quite match that. So you're, you'd always be chasing a high that would elude you. You know, there would always be... There's nothing perfect in life, Luke. And like, no matter how good a peak experience you have, you know, you, you find yourself in this diminishing return state where you're, you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. I mean, that you're talking about if your, if your baseline is unhappy, then you're always going to go back to, to being unhappy. No matter yeah. how, how peak of an experience you have. Pe- peak experiences don't change your happiness level. No. No, no. And in a way, they, they sort of uh, take away from your happiness level because it was sort of a – this is the problem with um, uh, endorphin highs, you know. Um, you need you need to push it further to get the same high, you know. This is why people jump off cliffs and do daredevil type of things because they can need to keep doubling down until they finally kill themselves. Right, that's if you're pursuing I'm... highs. Like if you're if you're pursuing highs because highs make your life worth living, then you're in a very dangerous cycle. So I mean, you're talking yes. about addiction, right? Dopamine, chasing dopamine, yeah. Russia. Yeah. So yeah, I, I would much prefer yeah being like a like an administrative assistant on uh, the Luke Ford network, you know, than. <laughs> <laughs> my present job yeah well what if you did uh, the same work as you do in your present job but you simply like the people that you're interacting with i find anything it's bearable if i like the people that i'm around yes that would certainly help in my case that would certainly help in my case and that's not presently true for me right whether so, i live in in greenland or iceland or sydney australia or los angeles what will mm. primarily affect my happiness level is the is the quality of my relationships with the people around me like if i like the people that i'm interacting with you know pretty much if i'm working at mcdonald's but i like the people that i'm interacting with i i I would think that i'd be a fairly happy guy yeah that's true it reminds me of a story like i i once had a temp job where i worked at a uh like this factory that assembled um veterinary testing equipment it was incredibly mindless, tedious work. <laughs> but I was working with this guy who sort of ended up there because he owned a bar in Boston and somebody got killed in his bar. So he sold his bar and moved back with his mother and ended up working at this temp job with me. And we would just, we would just, <laughs> we would just rib each other the entire time. It would just be continuous hysterical laughter, like throughout the whole day. You know, uh, doing basically monkey work, work that was just, just complicated enough that a monkey couldn't do it, you know, right. really meaningless. 
disassembling two pieces, you know, punching a hole in something and twisting a cap. It was just ridiculously simple like that, you know. Uh, so you have a point, but uh, so that's not the case in Phantom Sands for you right now. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, I mean, I enjoy being with my brother. But like yeah. I'm getting my hands dirty, you know, I'm potting plants, I'm, you know, I'm making the potting mix, I'm wheeling it around, I'm taking pet plants out of smaller pots, putting them into bigger pots, piling the dirt all around them. Like I've mm. got dirt under my, my fingernails. And yeah, I think, think it's healthy, but I, I would not want to, well, I wouldn't know. I would not want to do that 40 hours a week. I, I do prefer office work. Uh, I've spent enough of my life doing construction work, but go ahead. Well, yeah, something about that work would would annoy me is that when dirt gets on your hands, your hands get really dry. You find that? And uncomfortably dry. That's the only thing that would bother me about that type of work. Do you have gloves that you wear or do you have? No, I'm sure I could ask for, I'm sure I could ask for gloves. I mean, we we do have gloves, but uh, I mean, I've only got a couple more days of, of work here, but. Um, yeah. I, I enjoy being with my brother, but also some of the times, you know, the work, you know, is, uh, is absolutely miserable. Like it's so stinking hot. It's like sometimes it's 95 degrees, you know, 60% yeah. humidity and, yeah. you know, I'm shifting concrete and I am just wiped out. Yeah. That sounds like absolute hell. It's just the heat alone sounds like hell. And that, that, uh, that's, you know, that's what I couldn't believe when I got my first office job was like, how easy the climate is just the fact that it's like 68 and there's like a you know there's a candy machine <laughs> and a coffee maker all these amenities that don't exist out in the wild you know uh yeah i was really high on that for about a few months and like we had an office supply closet you know it was filled with all these nice pens and you could just go in and take as many as you want <laughs> Yeah. yeah. I remember being really excited about that. <laughs> well, have you worked construction? Because, I mean, I've worked construction for, for I years. Worked, I, I, worked, I did about three I, years. I worked uh, painting. Painting. Okay. Which is not really construction, but it's... Yeah, it's, it's, it's part of the construction crew. People come around. Yeah. 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 But construction is, you know, Holland's, you know, real construction workers are tough you know painters are not nearly so tough and how long did you work as a house painter well i actually worked as a boat painter a boat painter okay. so, yeah so which is basically the same thing but the paint is a little bit different you know it's kind of a stronger paint and like uh there's a lot more uh prep that needs to go on you have to really sand things pretty thoroughly and then put on a coat and then sand again it's really tedious um and there's a certain art to doing varnish work you know those big boats have uh what's called cap rail which is your handrail that kind of rings the boat and these are usually made out of teak teak wood and to keep these in shape, you have to, not to go on a long digression here, but you have to, uh, it, the varnish is always being battered by the sun, you know? So it's always blistering and painting and peeling. So you need to constantly be applying coats of varnish every three to six months, you know? 
it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work and it's tedious. How, how long did you do it for? Hard. I did it for about nine months. Okay, so yeah, you should have a good feeling. I mean, you you, you can't romanticize construction work after that. No, I can't. But at the same time, I I do miss. You know, obviously I was a lot younger then, but I, I do miss being dead tired when I got home. You know, just dead tired and just collapsing into like deep sleep and like, you know, really being exhausted and then getting to sleep. You know, there's a certain satisfaction in that. And um, yeah, I don't want to romanticize it, but there are things that I do miss about it at the same time. It's hard to explain. Like, it really tests your limits, don't you think? Don't you feel like your limits are being yes. tested? Yes, yeah. and I mean, I, I did it for three or four years, so so I yeah. don't, I don't romanticize it. I mean, I, I worked mainly landscaping, so digging ditches outside, laying pipe, you know, just uh, pick and shovel work. <laughs> um, then also uh. working as a foreman of a, of a crew of Mexican laborers, chiefly, and some some drug addicts and alcoholics and. Um, but also getting to, to deal with some really rich, smart people who are, who are in the construction business. That was, that was fun. I like, I like smart. And one of them introduced me to his daughter. And so when mm. I go to the site, I get to talk to his daughter and that was a lot of fun. And I went out with her a few times. So yeah, again, it comes down to the quality of the people that you're with. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, my work is really solitary. So it was actually pretty lonely. Like I would have a task and sometimes I'd work with another guy, but mainly I would just do a bunch of work. And then once in a round, the guy I worked would just kind of swing by and see if I was making progress. Right. Yeah. So I couldn't really <laughs> slough off, yeah. you know, like I wanted to. And plus I wouldn't at that age, I was so like eager and naive about, <laughs> you know, I was trying to like, Make sure that you know six dollars an hour. Right? Yeah. What year was and this? I was trying. This would have been nineteen eighty nine, I think, or eighty eight. Let me see, eighty eight or eighty seven. Late eighties. I'm not. Hold on, I'm doing the math here. It's uh, yeah, it was eighty seven. Eighty seven. The year I graduated high school. Okay. So what would so, if you if you had an addiction would it be food or alcohol or adrenaline rushes or bungee jumping gambling or gambling gambling gambling, gambling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah I wouldn't call it a yeah if I was to yeah I don't feel like I I, I gamble that much but boy I'd love to. <laughs> Yeah, I find it really fun, and it's and I know it's unhealthy at the same time. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I was so into gambling. I was my high school's bookie. Yeah, I remember that story. Yeah, you told that. You told that. Um, and I lost over a thousand dollars. Yeah, and he, and he had to let you off. Well, I yeah, I said I was leaving the country, and like here's two hundred bucks. But after that, I, I vowed never to gamble again. Though I have done it when someone gave me $20. They simply want a company. So if it's yeah. somebody else's money, then I can go yeah. along with it. It's funny. My, my brother can gamble. He can gamble yeah. more than $20 of his own money and just doesn't do anything for him. So I just don't think he has an addictive personality. 
So the problem yeah. for, for me is if my baseline is not happy, like if I'm like a finely tuned Ferrari, like unless I'm in tune, you know, I've got mm. a lot of negativity going on inside of me. And then when I get negative, then a desire to lash out at others. But when I'm finely tuned, then, then I'm a happy guy. But if I get out of tune, then I'm jonesing for, for a release, an escape from, from my misery. So that was, that was gambling, that was watching TV, that was pornography, that was falling in love with women, uh, mm. you know, the, the thirst for attention, you know, all sorts of things, like anything to like take my mind, you know, away from my present state. Yeah, but don't you think, you know, I mean, it's one thing, there's a habit, and then there's like the occasional just, you know, relaxation, throw your heels up, you know, let your forget about, I mean, people need that, you know, just a little time away from the rigors of mundane life. I don't think it's necessarily a pathology, um, the way you're sort of characterizing it. Like, well, it's a, patho- it's a pathology if it acts like a pathology. If it's separating you from other people, if it is uh, getting you into a, a negative cycle, if you're mm-hmm. making bad decisions, if you're hurting your reputation, if you're isolating yourself from other people, if uh, it's it's causing you misery, then, then it's a pathology. If it's not, if it's just an, an addition to your life, then it's not a pathology. So plenty of people can gamble without any problems. You know, plenty of people can watch TV without any problems. Plenty of people can eat chocolate cake without any problems. Plenty of people can have a drink or smoke uh, dope w- without any problems. Well, okay. Like, like when I was, you know, like in the, I remember like going to the casino, you know, when I was living on the East Coast. And gambling, you know, three, four, five hours, and then just feeling absolutely disgusted at the end, you know? Yeah. And, and like, never wanting to go near this place again, you know? And then three months later, I can't wait to go again. Okay, that (laughs) sounds pathological. Yeah, it is. I mean, that's clearly pathological. Like, if you you hate yourself after eating chocolate cake... Yeah, and then the next day or the next week, you can't wait to eat chocolate cake again. Then you've got something pathological going on with chocolate cake. Yeah. Well, part of it, you know, if you lose, the problem with gambling, why it's so insidious, is that uh, winning doesn't feel nearly as good as losing feels bad. Yeah. Right, and so. Basically, people keep coming back is because they want vengeance. They feel hard done by, and they just want to even the score, you know. And they keep falling down because the math always works for the house, you know. So you're you're really always going to lose over the long run. And still, people go in, you know, myself included, thinking, "Well, I can outfox them this time," you know. <laughs> It's very unhealthy. I agree. I mean, that what you're describing sounds pathological. Now, it may not. It's not a full-fledged addiction if it's not actively hurting your life. But it's, it's like it sounds like something that's not benefiting you. No, it absolutely isn't. And um, you know, uh, so when did you last go I, gambling? 
Uh, like at a casino, you mean? Um, or online? <laughs> I haven't been to a casino in about five years. Uh, so, but I, I'll do horse racing online pretty frequently. Not for too much, but it, it, it's a magnet. It is a magnet for my mind when I need a really, I need to sort of zone out. And you're not, and Luke's not streaming. I need some place to go. Yeah. And how would you compare the high from gambling to the high from trolling? Um, gambling feels better, <laughs> but trolling, trolling can be done artfully, I think, and there's a, it does have its own. Uh, satisfaction, but you're comparing apples and oranges. I think I, I don't think I don't think the two are comparable. Do you? Uh, yeah, I, I think. Well, everything you can find things that it's that they have in common and things that they are different. So just because I can find similarities between the high that people get from trolling and the high that they get from gambling, does not mean that there also aren't many differences. So there are both similarities and differences. So Judaism and Christianity have some similarities. They also have substantial differences. Uh, myself and J.F. Garupi have some similarities, and we also have some major differences. So Right. I guess, I guess you're right, because they are both a form of dopamine in a certain way. So ultimately, they all come back, come down to dopamine. But trolling... Okay. There's a certain amount of creativity in trolling that seems like it's, you know, an art or a craft. Whereas gambling is not like that. I don't know. Well, no, of course it, it can be an art and a craft. I mean, there are plenty of gambling games that involve considerable elements of, of skill. Well, it's for the reason. That's why I don't tweet. I know if I got involved with Twitter... I would probably just tweet all day. I would get in some sort of flame war and then never let it go, you know? Yeah. And I could see falling into that. Um, so I, I put a wall around it, you know? I try to, you know, we're, we're, we're presented with so many opportunities to sort of waste time. Um. So I did have enough foresight to sort of know, you know, my what my tendencies are. Now, do you get into flame wars on Twitter? Do you get into oh, you, long no, threats? No, I, I don't get into flame wars on Twitter. I don't get into flame wars off Twitter. I mean, I can't remember yeah. the last time. I, I feel like it's been years. So you're sort of like a, you know, uh, kind of a drive-by tweeter. You're just gonna throw it out there and Yeah, I'll make my own tweets, but I don't I don't get into arguments with people on Twitter. I mean very, very yeah. rarely. It just doesn't seem productive. Yeah. So I did sort of quote unquote lose a friend last year uh over Facebook. Mm -hmm. So this guy that was a friend of mine and then, you know, we'd go back and forth, back and forth for like years. Um you know, debating Russia Gate and bullshit like that and um, and then after uh, Biden won the election, ostensibly. <laughs> uh, Disavow, he won it fair and square in the YouTube. 
uh, he, uh, I, I just thoroughly lost patience with him. And I said, you know, F you. And then I defriended him. It's the only, you know, it's the first time I ever defriended anybody. Whoa. But um, because I, you know, I didn't feel like he was engaging with me. It's not because he had opinions that I disagreed with me, but he just, I felt he was engaging with me in a really dishonest manner. And he was basically chewing up my time. And it was basically me pleading with him to have a real two-way conversation. I didn't feel like he was doing it. And, uh, you know, I just finally just lost all patience and I just cut ties with him. So how have we managed to keep our friendship, even though we uh, pretty passionately disagreed about a lot of things? Um, well, uh, you don't, you don't like, you know, send me a message in the, during the day and then want to have a long debate. Right. We have disagreements, you know, when you stream and we yeah. have disagreements in chat, but yeah. it's confined and I don't, you know, and I think our disagreements are kind of on the margins or not real sort of uh, highly principled ideas that we're defending. You know, we just, we have differing opinions about something that's unclear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, it's it's simply that. So the nature of our disagreement is pretty slight. So I don't think it's anything to to sort of blow up a friendship over. Whereas this guy, you know, he's convinced that Trump, um, you know, conspired with Putin to overturn the election. Oh, and, and I'm like, that's absurd. So yeah. this is like, that's the level of disagreement that we were having, right? It was just, he believed in something that I believe in absurd and you know we can't even we can't even sort of discuss anything close to that to sort of get some version of the truth and so i'm like okay a year this is enough and you're you're sort of obsessed about this in a way that i'm not you know i've expressed my opinion you know i get a message from him in the middle of the night you think here read this you oh know? Yeah, yeah yeah you know it's like dude and then i'd have a retort and then I'd expect a response from him. He says, I don't have time for this. <laughs> you know? This is just a sort of dishonest way of having disagreement. So, I mean, I think that's why, you know, you and I don't really come to blows over your opinion of the VAX and mine or your opinion of the election. My point, or just for the record, right, I'm thinking, saying I'm not convinced the election was stolen, but I'm not convinced that it wasn't. I think there's a lot of, you know, statistical non anomalies. Okay, we better not go on. I don't I just want to point, it's a matter of, you know, interpretation of some facts that are in evidence. That's all I'm trying to say. Same thing with the, uh, you know, with the cocoa. You know, I think... Uh, you know, I think it's a bit overblown. I think, you know, I think Omicron is really the end of the story here and we should just get ready for a new chapter and we can move on. So that's where I stand on these great momentous issues of our time. So I'm reading, so we're going to have to delete this video off YouTube as soon as we've finished here, but uh, reading Why, it, why, why? Did because I what you just said is not allowed on YouTube. Even by obliquely referring to it? 
Um, I just need, don't need the aggravation of another strike. I mean, I, I think it's ridiculous uh, too, but but uh, I, I I mean I go ahead. Uh, never mind. Never mind. I don't want to. I don't want to drag it at you further. I mean, fine. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. I honestly didn't mean to do that. No, no, no problem. Right. So I'm reading. Right, what were you reading? Article in the Los Angeles Times: uh, Logan Paul and the elusive quest to build a free speech platform that's not a cesspool. Do you know who uh, Logan Paul is? I do only because I'm a you know it's a big Red Bar listener, and Red Bar is always making fun of Logan Paul. <laughs> So I know him that way, but not, I'm not a direct consumer of his podcast. Okay. So he has not posted on YouTube for six months. And, uh, because he says I got demonetized, I got blacklisted, I got shadow banned. It's really demotivating when you are yourself and the platform that you're on because of the advertising, because of public sentiment, whatever it is, no longer wants to support you. So Logan Paul has traded in YouTube for Subify. So you heard about Subify? No, no. So that company runs the back-end tech for his boutique fan network of the Maverick Club. So apparently people pay $20 a month to mm-hmm. subscribe to his, his streams, and there are basically no restrictions on what he can post there. So so, so it's just like early day, early, early uh, YouTube? Yeah. Style Wild West? Yeah. <sighs> and, and so... Logan Paul and the Subify co-founder had a chat with the Los Angeles Times about this. And uh, the Subify co-founder says, well, if we had a Nazi platform, Nazi on the platform that just wanted to talk about their beliefs, I personally would have a very hard time telling, hard time telling them you're not allowed to do that unless they're inciting violence. But uh, that apparently was news to Logan Paul. He says, look, I love your sentiment, but as another creator on the platform, you'd be hearing from me. <laughs> so they, <laughs> they kind of came to came to blows about verbal blows about whether or not to allow a Nazi on the platform. So if I was running a free speech platform, I would have no problem having a Nazi on the platform, but I would have a problem having a lowbrow Nazi on the platform. So it would have to be high IQ and definitely no encouragement of illegal behavior. That That's kind of where I draw the line. How about you? Yeah, I think, I think I'm with you there. Yeah. I mean, I, I I err on the side of free speech, right? So on the side of openness. Um, uh, I mean, I do miss those early days. I mean, uh, but you think it's going to work out? Like, the thing is, there's once the whole point of YouTube is that you'd get the passerbys, you know, Mm -hmm. that haven't paid any money. They're just sort of free floating and curious, you know? And they could, you know, the true normie that just hasn't been exposed to, to new ideas and they could wander onto your stream and then, you know, get a <laughs> substantial dose of red pills. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't believe in, uh, okay, let's say we had a highbrow Nazi on, on my video service and some people got excited about what he was saying. I would suspect mm-hmm. that there would be much higher proportion of people who got angry about what he was saying. So I don't believe in like the zombie bite theory of information that if you have a Nazi um, espousing Nazism, that people, you know, that some vulnerable people are just going to watch it and get contaminated. I think the only people who would be enthused would be people who are already predisposed in that, in that 
direction. I don't think you'd have a normal guy, let's say professor of English literature, like someone who's like married with kids, you know, someone who's a responsible member of the community. I don't think he, you know, getting exposed to Mein Kampf or something would cause him to ruin his life. No, there there'd obviously have to be some sort of tension beneath that it brings to the surface or something. Not that, that I know we're talking about a thoroughly hypothetical, yeah. non-real case here, <laughs> just completely arbitrary, picked at random. So that goes without saying. Um, but I don't believe people get radicalized on YouTube. I don't believe people get radicalized in the sense that they are passive. I believe that the only people who quote unquote get radicalized are people who already have that latent inside of them. And, and then the so-called radicalization can make explicit what's already implicit. But yeah. I, I don't believe in the zombie bite theory of information that there are videos or ideas out there that will just snag people and lead them down a dark path. Did you say zombie bite? Is that the term? Yeah, you're using? zombie bite. Yeah, 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 people get just bit by you know information or a video, and they go down a dark path. Yeah, well, I do notice there is a there there. Yeah, uh, right. So information exposes what's already latent, but that's also. I think a lot of people go to YouTube because they just want to be. They want to have their views reinforced. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's that's you know the vast number of users and they, they want to sort of quell some anxiety if they've met a challenge. So they want to hear their point of view reified in some way. Um, I don't think <clears throat> what percentage of people do you think are just genuinely curious, right? And have no opinion, but want to have an opinion and want to hear a number of sides of an issue, you know, 10, 20%. Yeah, quite low. I mean, I think most people just want their own opinion supported or they're willing to go further down down a path. You know, they might be right wing or left wing, but they're willing to go further. People are often willing to be more radical in whatever's Mm. their natural tendency. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Like I've watched none of Millennial this year. I haven't tuned in. I used to be a pretty avid watcher of that stuff uh but, not that Jermaine uh, have you I wouldn't him? I wouldn't censor Greg Johnson I wouldn't censor uh Richard Spencer uh Mike Enoch and Eric Stryker are kind of borderline for me so if they mm. if they put on their most responsible face then mm. then yeah I'd be okay with it but if they if they start you know hinting at you know, criminal acts or uh, mass murder, mm. then, yeah, then you'd have to be gone. So information doesn't change people. Uh, it doesn't Information doesn't change people from the direction they want to go on. If someone wants to go on a direction, then they're not going to be dissuaded by information. But information just provides uh, reasons for people to do what they want to do. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And then it sort of um, makes them hungrier for more information. Like, like you know, a lot of lot of sort of more lowbrow Nazis will sort of latch onto something and really want to squeeze that source or that stream of thought for all it's worth. And... <clears throat> really don't want to admit uh, any other versions of, of a history. 
So that's sort of like things that are peripheral. Like, I don't know, like it's this weird tie between sort of, sort of lowbrow Nazis and then these other conspiracy theories that are just truly nuts, you know? Yeah. And these are always sort of tied and looped in somehow. And, uh, they become, you can't challenge sort of the crazy stuff because it indirectly reflects on the Nazi stuff. If you know what I'm saying. So uh, I do see a lot of just very muddled thought patterns in the lowbrow Nazi crowd. And it's regrettable. So uh, our friend Half Galician says, Luke, so information doesn't change people. I argue that it doesn't overwhelmingly. So 98% of the time, I would say it does not. And then Half Galician says, I think this is a nonsensical position that assuages the guilt of those who make content on the margins of societal propriety. Well, it's either true or it's not true. If what you're arguing is true, half collision, you're arguing essentially for the zombie bite theory of information. The people watch a video and they get radicalized. They read a book and they get radicalized. Then you'd see far more people completely changing their life trajectory and going in a completely new direction. But people spend billions of dollars on advertising and political advertising makes only the tiniest, tiniest difference. Like at most it would account for 1% of the vote. So if 99% of people who vote are unchanged by political advertising and 1% are changed by political advertising, then I would feel much more comfortable in my position. For example, the, the Nazis and the, the Soviet communists and the Chinese communists have massive, massive propaganda outfits and they didn't change any minds people who were already predisposed to side with the communists or the nazis sided with them and those who weren't disposed were not changed by joseph goebbels propaganda or joe stalin's propaganda so i'll read you a little bit more here from this uh, la times article on uh, logan paul and looking for a free speech platform online and we've got a professor of UC at UCLA, co-founder of UCLA's Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, Sarah Roberts. And she says, simple fact is no company in its right mind would ever throw its hands up and cede control of its product solely to the users of that product. I think that's a good point. So if, if a company makes YouTube, there's no reason for them to cede control of their product solely to the users of that product. What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. As much as I hate it, but I agree. Um, you know, what is it? Businesses always tend to would have to. They they always sort of shoot for the middle of the bur the the bell curve where everyone is, right? Right. And and you can't offend that group, the bulk of the people just to please the tails if the tails offend the center of the bell curve. Because the tails just aren't numerous enough to to be worth it. If they if to use a bell curve style <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> Probably badly formed. Right? It's like like ultimately, you know, people forget like the amount of investment, the amount of sheer computer hardware that it requires to put out a product like YouTube and 
you know, the necessity for that thing to make a profit or at least break even, uh, they, there's real costs involved. And I think people have the idea that it's just easy to do. You can just assemble, you know, that much hardware and have it work and just be free to everyone for, for all time, for all purposes. Um, it's, it was really, it's, really, it's staggering. Uh, it's staggering the numbers involved. And people have no idea how big those numbers are. Here's a little bit more from uh, Sarah Roberts, associate professor at UCLA, co-founder of its Center for Critical Internet Inquiry. Says, she says, I consider content moderation to be primarily a tool of brand management for firms. The firms themselves have to assess what risk they're willing to take by having distasteful, abhorrent material on their site. I think this is absolutely right. Most big tech censorship is for reasons of making money. It's not primarily a political thing. It's you. However, Go ahead. However I, I do think, I mean, it's without a doubt the big tech companies are putting their thumb on the scale with, with regard to American politics and particularly, you know, the election. I mean, it's on, you can't doubt the fact that they were overstepping their bounds, I think. Right. I'm, I'm fine with that, but I think it's overwhelmingly a commercial decision. It's not overwhelmingly a political decision. There, there are probably some political uh, repercussions and, and some political collateral damage, but it's primarily a matter of making money. So, but censoring the United States president... Kicking the president of the United States off your platform is a commercial decision. Is everything? Yeah. I mean, offending half the user base seems to be ill-advised, right? Uh, maybe, maybe, but is there? I mean, is there any evidence that Twitter has suffered as a result of that decision? Uh, I haven't looked into it. Um, I know Twitter has, uh, you know, not been a great financial success. Its stock price has been basically the same for 10 years. Um, for a company that has a user base that big, they're not monetizing well at all. So I don't, I can't tie that to, uh, uh, you know, political censorship, but it does seem to go against the grain of the spirit of that type of application. You know, something where you're, you're inviting people to express their opinions, except these opinions that you don't like. These are quite Trump support is a rather mainstream opinion. You may disagree with it, but it's, I think quite a stretch to say it's sort of outside the bounds of Overton window so much so that it has to be squelched. Well, the thing is, with regard to Twitter's decision to demand Donald Trump, they they have to deal with the consequences of that decision. So if they allow Donald Trump to, to say things that that uh, could be argued to precipitate violence, then then they they can't necessarily apply a different standard to other people. So it's the, the consequences of, I think, January 6th of, of that riot that uh, I think forced social media companies to confront, okay, what was our role in in allowing um, so, information to to radicalize people? 
All right, so Trump was kicked off. I don't remember the timeline. It was after January 6th? Yeah, it was right after January 6th. And the jury's really still out about how uh, egregious uh, January 6th really was. I mean, you know, was it the wisest move? No, but was it, it wasn't really storming the Bastille either, was it? No. Okay, so so what, I don't remember what, is there a particular tweet that, that Trump, said that, that that Trump published that was uh, no that egregious no I don't believe it was a, it was a particular but uh... and, and, and then uh, well okay what about this remember the Hunter Biden laptop thing you know yes. just putting you know just unbidden just sort of saying this has been decredited or, or just failing to, you know, not allowing that story, not allowing the story of the New York Post to publish that material on Twitter. That just seems like a nakedly political decision. Do you, do you agree? It, uh, it does seem like a political decision. Um, it, but it has it, nothing to do, nothing to do with what you're arguing about, about with about radicalism or, or you know, violence. It just seems to be Silicon Valley trying to influence the outcome of an election. Yeah. So if if that same story come out from the New York Times, I don't think they would have censored it. The, the New York Post is probably the most unreliable mainstream newspaper in, in America. So, so I can understand social media companies uh, being concerned about that. Uh, is it unreliable or is it just blue collar? No, it's, it's unreliable. It, it's just, it, it's just reckless uh, tabloid. Uh, so, so it's probably the most you know dubious source of information among America's major newspapers. Remember, they posted that, that article on, on voter fraud, uh, just a series of allegations, but they never followed up on it and they never provided any evidence. They just you know, threw in this incendiary article on voter fraud. But if they were, if there's anything to what they said, it'd be the most important article of the year. But they couldn't be bothered to follow up and they couldn't be bothered to provide any evidence. It's just it's just uh, bomb-throwing tabloid style without without much regard for the truth. Well, okay, I, I, I have I, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, I, I'm not a New York Post reader. Um, but that, but is that Twitter's decision? You know, like these media outlets are acceptable; these are not, right? So, yeah, I, I mean, I think the media and and big tech look really bad with what they try to do with the Hunter Biden laptop story. Like, I think it was a mistake, and and I think they looked idiotic and rightfully so. And doesn't this sort of thing sort of feed into the the general information crisis when you have, you know, just arbitrary acts like that, and so and then people wonder why they don't believe the mainstream media about. COVID and so forth, you know, it, it, it just reinforces the idea that there's, you know, cabal of interests that have paid off by big corporate interests and their ideas to push, uh, 
you know, to benefit solely corporate interests and they're not going to tell you the truth about stories. You know, it just sort of feeds that sort of paranoia loop and with some justification. Yeah, but every every decision they make is going to be arbitrary, right? 55 miles an hour speed limit is, is arbitrary. Every every law is going to be arbitrary. Like at, uh, you know, at, at what point is it is it, you know, felony theft and what point is it just misdemeanor theft? So if you get arrested stealing $951 in California, that's that's potentially felony theft. If you get caught stealing $950, it's misdemeanor theft. So every legal system is arbitrary. Okay. Okay, so when a gentleman drives an SUV through a crowd of, uh, you know, holiday revelers, kills some of them, and the media publishes a story about a SUV spontaneously going out of control. Yeah. Uh, Twitter doesn't seem to uh, exercise any um, editorial judgment in how they allow such those stories to be published, right? Uh, so, yeah, again, I think obviously the, the news media looks really bad. That was a, a racially motivated attack. And okay. And uh, yeah, I think the news media looks so bad because it was so, it was so obviously, it was so obviously a, a partisan, a partisan decision. All right. Well, maybe we've okay. Fair enough. But I think we've wandered a little far field off the original point. Um, or have we? So, um, we, so we were we talking were, about the dilemmas of any like any tech free speech platform is going to have dilemmas okay, because right. you're going to have to arbitrarily, arbitrarily draw the line somewhere. Like I would kind of draw the line at Mike Enoch and, uh, and Eric Stryker. Right. So right. Um, you have to draw the line somewhere and there's always going to be an arbitrary element to it. Okay. But so but the next one, the next thing on the agenda, right. The media agenda is going to be global warming, i.e. climate change. Yeah. Right. And, there's a valid, open, scientific debate about this, right? But the media has clearly in, with, lined up with the people saying that, you know, uh, global warming is real, it's a threat, it's peril, we need to take action, right? And they've, ju- they've uh, lined up between the people calling people who oppose this deniers, right? Sort of tacitly invoking Holocaust type language around what's truly a legitimate scientific debate. And coming up after this little COVID storm passes, that's going to be what's front and center, right? And the people who are, who the anti-warmists are going to be treated the same way that anti-vaxxers are currently being treated. And, um, this to me is a problem and it's um it, you know it, it it just shows you the arbitrary power that these tech conglomerates have if they're going to sort of reduce the uh they're just going to narrow the scope of what's an acceptable debate 
without any scientific backing, uh, it, this is terrible. Wait, you can't say that there's no scientific backing for, uh, on global warming. I am not well read on global warming, but there is a scientific consensus on it. And but that the, the, mean point, that the right. point is, okay. right. But the, remember, the consent, all right, the long score discussion, you have to do the reading, you have to expose yourself to the stories. But the, basically, every, you know, the consensus is drawn from people who benefit from there being a consensus on this particular topic. This is, you have to understand how science is funded. Um, but science needs to drive up fear to get the budgets for its, you know, professional science is a government dependent uh, enterprise. And it's driven, it's, it's paid for by tax revenue, right? And they don't want, they don't, they need that fear story to be front and center of everyone's mind to sort of just keep their institutions going. So that's the short end of it. It's the same thing. So this, it's, it's, you know, we have the foxes guarding the hen house yet again with this particular issue. Yeah. Tech theoretically could have been an outlet for the foxes to be called into question. And it may it not even not being... just be financial. I mean, various people have an incentive to be alarmist if it could make them more powerful or raise their prestige. So true. So every profession seeks to expand its prestige and to to seize as many advantages as possible for its its members. So what's you know what's in the advantage of, of lawyers and doctors and scientists is not necessarily in the advantage of society. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, woe is us. Well, is it really woe is us? I mean, are there also many reasons to be you know, joyful? I mean, there's so much good in the world. I mean, we've got vaccines against this COVID. Uh, I mean, we've got you know science uh, making new discoveries on a regular basis. So I'm just thinking, say, with regard to what you're just talking about, it, it reminds me of something I just learned last week called uh, self-verification theory. So that posits that people feel most comfortable with, with news and with information that is consistent with their own self-view. And so it seems that you have a... A dark, a dark view on life, and so it seems like you gravitate to finding more and more reasons to feel gloomy. Uh, is this the royal you, or is this the literal you, as in me? Uh, it's both. Okay. Well, how dark is my worldview if, A, I don't think the world's burning up because of climate change, and B, I don't think COVID is really that big of a threat? That seems to be the opposite of the dark worldview. It seems to be a rather sunny and joyous worldview. Right. But you were just spending a few minutes talking about how your sunny, joyous worldview is suppressed and people who articulate your sunny, joyous worldview can't, can't say it out loud on the public square that is social media. So even though you may have a sunny worldview, the upshot of what you're saying is despair. Well, it is, okay, A, I'm not despairing, but B, it is a cause for concern if 
the media is basically putting a boot on people's happiness is, you know, you know, because they profit from, you know, uh, making people afraid and scared of things that they don't need to be afraid and scared about. So, whoa, maybe what was the wrong word? But yes, I think there's it's reasonable and responsible to find these people contemptible. Okay, so you just, um, I, I think I think there's something worthy of criticism, and I agree with many of the things that you just uh, you just elaborated on on reasons for for criticism. I think they made some some bad decisions, and I do believe that most people in, in power in big tech and in, in the news media do have a, a left wing view of life, and that, that does influence the, the decisions they make. But the the upshot of what what you you usually say is that things are really bad. I mean, that isn't that the upshot of, of almost everything you say publicly? Uh, I I think they're worse than they could. No, okay. The objective world is fine, right? The media created world is incredibly unfine so okay if somebody's lying to somebody and i call out the liar does that make me negative right me being opposed to the liar lying to an unsuspecting uh innocent person right if i'm calling out the liar how am I? I'm not really participating in some woe drama. I'm acting righteously, right? Yeah, it seems on on the face of it what you what you just described. So, so my metaphor, you might not find that the metaphor I'm using being applicable. The scenario I'm, I'm is it really a metaphor? It's not really. Is it the scenario that I'm that I'm, I'm I'm putting out there is being applicable to the media, but. It, it just seems like people are being robbed of their future right now. But aren't those people just stacked up like useless cordwood in the cities? They are. And um, it's a pity. Because you want me to tell you a story of uh, useless cordwood, by the way? Yes. Okay. So um, I had a lot of laundry stacked up, you know, I've been doing a lot of things. It's a lot of laundry. It's stacked up. So uh, instead of doing the laundry here in the building where there's only two machines, I just drove my laundry to a big laundry mat where I have lots of machines so I could just get it all done at once. Right. So while there, there's this woman uh, sort of all, she's got a hat on, she's got a mask on, you know, and like, uh, <sighs> It's just I didn't really think that I could really talk to her, engage in her, with her or anything, you know. Uh, but we ended up talking nonetheless. And turn, come to find out she's a cancer survivor. She wears the hat. She's been through chemo and, and uh, all these true tales of woe and so forth. And one of her problems currently now is that there's this dude that lives in her apartment building and he's basically cooking mess. And every time he sees her, he just cusses her out and makes threatening, you know, statements towards her and um, is just truly a menace, a guy that really just 
needs to be in jail, right? But, you know, the city just, you know, the, the cops can't arrest him for some technology or another. Uh, and so she's just here living in what seems like hell. Um, and I just, um, I really feel bad about it. I feel like, I feel like things are crumbling and I think nobody's stepping up in it. It's becoming, I think that's, it's a very small story in a very small, you know, it's just one of the few interactions with a stranger I've had recently. And that's what, that's what I'm told about. Right. So I just wonder like what's really going on, uh, in these cities is, is everything just crumbling from within. And then if you, you take this story, then you, you sort of contrast it with not, then you compare it to the stories you hear online in our little spur communities. You know, it does make it seem like there's this sort of impending doom everywhere. And that is an example of a person living in a city stacked up like cordwood waiting to die to finish the story. Right. So you said, why isn't anyone stepping up? My question would be, why isn't she stepping up? Why isn't she doing something about that situation? Uh, well, she told me that she's trying to step up so forth, but you know, she's obviously, you know, late middle-aged woman with, you know, an illness, relatively, you know, serious illness or recovered from a very serious illness. I, I'm not, you know, I don't know much about her, but it just sounds like a, si a situation that if we had a strong culture, you know, this guy would be arrested, right? Yeah. And, and in some cities he would be, right? I mean, or in some communities he would be. Right. In a less permissive society he would be. Right, right. And, you know, I thought, well, then I thought, well, why don't I do something? Should I intervene in this situation? You know, like, well, where's my standing? And is this something that I need to, you know, I just had these thoughts, right? right. And then, then I'm, am I like a good Samaritan or do I just wash my hands of it and just move on, right? Just pretend I've never heard about it and just go back to my individual life. Well, I guess because I have what, no what would come to mind to me is that you could join in an effort to recall the San Francisco district attorney. Yeah, so cast a vote, and that's the extent of my involvement needs to be. Well, no, not not cast a vote. You can you can be more active than that. Oh, you know, like actively, uh, you know, work on a campaign and so forth. Yeah. But I just work in the political realm solely, but not personally do anything. Yeah, I don't think you should personally take on a method, no. Yeah, I don't believe me, I'm not inclined to, but I guess, you know, in, in tighter communities, there would be... Um, yes, so people would get together would... and would take care of it. Like if that happened in Tenham Sands, where I am, right. people would get together, yeah. I think, and take care of it, or they would call the cops and the cops would take care of it. Right. And she says she's calling cops, but it was his word against hers, so forth. They didn't have enough to to arrest him, so he she started recording him and uh, you know, she's sort of on a path towards eventually getting this guy arrested. 
But, you know, she tells me stories about, you know, cooking mass in an apartment. Now, mass used to be something that you'd hear about that only existed on the fringes, you know, deep in the hinterlands, like hillbilly heroin, this kind of thing. And now it's just ubiquitous, it seems. Like, I don't know. So, yeah, it, you, I think that she maybe post videos on Nextdoor. You've heard of the Nextdoor app? Where yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I monitor a lot. Seems like a place for, for, for posting on Nextdoor because I see people in the community where, where I live, you know, getting together to discuss these sorts of problems all the time. And then someone usually knows someone in power who can then try to do something about it. So this is in L.A. or is this in Tamsins? Yeah. yeah, this is in L.A. Yeah. So are you getting a you getting a little um homesick for LA or I'm getting homesick for my own room and my own space and my own familiar space and my own electronics and all sorts of different goods and goodies that I have back home uh that that I use like my my foot massager, my flex bar, my my activator, the chiropractic instrument, so I miss my stuff. And uh I'm still I'm still probably 75%, 80% going to move to Sydney, uh, mm-hmm. probably 20% undecided. So I, I do plan to return to Los Angeles and see how I feel once I get back in LA. So, um, so, so you think um, after like a couple more weeks of hard labor and then you get off the plane in LA uh, hard, hard labor in blistering heat and you get off on the plane in LA and it's just like a nice balmy 68 with an ocean breeze. Are you going to suddenly like rekindle your feelings for LA at that point? I, I might. I might. Like, as soon as that air hits your face, you know? Or just like seeing my friends in LA or just my routine yeah. in LA. Like who knows? So I, I won't, I won't feel ashamed if I change my mind and decide to stay in LA. Yeah. And this could have just been the break that you needed. Exactly. Like, not bad taking two months off. Yeah. Now, if you do go back to uh, Australia, do you have sort of a career mapped out or career opportunities you think I you could pursue? I have things in the works, but nothing uh, nothing nailed down as yet. Now, would this be office work or would this be a backbreaking labor? <laughs> this would be office work. Okay. Okay. Uh uh, anyway, Luke, I don't know. I don't okay. know. I, I, I mean, like, I, I feel weird about being optimistic. I just feel weird about it because it feels like a lonely place to be at the same time. Most people I talk with seem to be overwhelmed with their troubles. And um, I feel like I have to hide my power level on my optimism and well, yeah, I think I think we, we we attract people into our life. I'm wondering. I, I'm I'm going to bet. I would bet based on on what I know about you that you attract an above average number of people with troubles. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I just assume more than that. I just assume everyone is has troubles because I I rarely meet people that don't seem to have a lot of troubles and want to talk about their troubles. Maybe you feel like to open up to me. I don't know. So here, let me give you a story. So there's this uh, drunk guy that calls calls a friend of mine regularly at, at my friend's job. 
And my friend, no matter how busy he is, he always likes to give this guy five minutes of his time. And sometimes the guy will call him three times a day at his, at his job, at his workplace. And, uh, but my friend has an employee who does not put up with any nonsense. And the guy once called and spoke to her, and she gave him such a stiff reprimand, the guy hasn't called back in a year. So some people just don't put up with, you know, the musings of, of drunks or addicts or losers. They just don't put up with that stuff. And then other people, I think, attract tales of woe. I'm definitely in that um, latter category. Yes, and there are people, and I've observed people like that, that uh, usually women, by the way, women are able to, like, shut the door on anything they don't like and slam it shut. Yes. (laughs) Whereas I do like to, I I do like to entertain a story, you know. Um, But you also like to rescue. You like to rescue. Uh, I, I do, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. But I do recognize the folly in that. But um, I, I do, you know, like I'd struggle with, uh, you know, what it means to be a good citizen. Are we not our brother's keeper, Luke? Uh, yes, we are. But we don't have the same equal obligations to, to everyone. And... Um, I, I, I guess I would side much more with the woman who just cut off the drunk guy um, than my friend who indulges him. Now, who would you rather spend time with, the guy that indulges him or the woman who cuts him off? Probably the guy who indulges him. Yeah. Do you think he's indulging you? He, I'm sure he does at times. That's a very good point. Because he's my brother. <laughs> Literally, yeah, no, he's literally my brother, and here I yeah. am, like working for him, and I'm like taking breaks to do live streams, or even not taking breaks, I'm live streaming while I'm working. So I'd say he's pretty indulgent. So, and he's cool with that, right? Um, he hasn't, because you're broke, he hasn't yelled at me about it. Yeah, have you uh, been yelled at? Not by my brother, but uh, I haven't been fired yet. It's just like everyone everyone in the family's got tales of how irresponsible I am and what a lousy worker I am. Like I'm showing yeah. them videos of me working and they're like pointing out all the things I'm doing wrong. So it's like we get these certain roles in the family. So I'm yeah. the youngest. I'm the most irresponsible. I'm the most um, pathetic. I'm the, uh, I'm like the least commonsensical. I'm like the least, you know, economically provisioned. And, you know, I'm the one who gets fired the most. I'm the one who uh, um, has the most absurd delusions. Uh, I'm I'm the one who's like, seems to be the least equipped for reality. And so, like from, you know, from the youngies around me to the oldies around me, they all, they're all tremendously entertained by my fecklessness. Now, do you think that, Do you think secretly they they like the color that, that you bring in that your yes. stories are yes. struggles yes. That they love yes right? you're I'm, like I'm, a, I'm entertaining them you're a sitcom you yeah know? yeah and the flesh and blood yeah I, right? I play my role I'm the you know the hapless fifty five year old uncle 
like doing a live stream to five live viewers. <laughs> is that what that was? Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so you're the youngest, huh? No, I'm yeah. the oldest. Yeah, I'm, I'm the, the youngest, oldest. but I've got I've got relatives who you know much much younger than me who've never been fired, who've never lost a friend in a falling out, who are you know, far <laughs> more responsible. Like the other day, I was looking at a fifty dollar Australian bill, and there's an Aborigine on the fifty dollar Australian bill, and I said. Uh, Oh, why is this guy on the fifty dollar bill? Did he graduate from high school? And, and, and the much younger family member said, "No, he he's never been fired from a job." <laughs> How much younger? Like really young? Uh, Thirty plus years younger. <laughs> so, did you find that humiliating? No, I found that hilarious. <laughs> fired right so maybe he's never had it so so are any of your uh, family members in australia are they um are they based in red pill as it were uh no none of them like quite a few are conservative yeah uh, none of them are based in red pill but they they would um, i guess they're based in red pill in, in some ways that are not socially acceptable in america so for example in america when you're looking to you know buy a place you know you'll tell the realtor you want uh, you know a place with good schools um right so some of my my more conservative relatives probably use fewer euphemisms <laughs> okay Okay, and that's still allowed in America, in Australia. Um, yeah, among the older ones, but the youngies who've been to university don't appreciate it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, uh, you know, I, I had a very, very small stint working in real estate as a basically a rental agent, yeah. right? And so there's this whole bunch. You have to take like a like a two day course and sort of. You have to get brushed up on all of the real estate law, right? But <clears throat> you can't tell anybody, you're prohibited, prohibited by law to tell anybody that a neighborhood is safe or not safe. Yeah, I noticed that. And, and two major real estate firms are, are no longer listing crime rates. Yeah, yeah. So if someone asks if it's safe, you're saying you have to refer them to like the state website. For crime statistics, but you can't utter an opinion on whether you think a neighborhood is safe or not. I mean, that's absurd. It is absurd. It is absurd. It's a strange. Despite supply chain pressures, so um, yeah, we all agree. It seems like everyone's just agreed to not see certain things and not know if they notice them to keep quiet about it. And you wonder. You know, can it go on forever? I mean, what is there sort of does something really bad have to happen before people start recognizing this? Or uh, good, uh, good, good question. You would think that eventually reality is going to win out. Yeah, or it'll just be a new set. It'll win out, but there'll be a new style of euphemism that gets sort of coded on top of it. So you can say what you want to say, but you're saying it in a way that doesn't seem like you're saying what you're saying. But everybody knows 
Yeah. That's what you're saying. And so they wink, you know, that yeah. kind of coded language just sort of take yeah. root somehow. Uh, sort of in the way we're speaking right now. Right. You know, that's probably how these things will go. Um, but, you know, friends shoot me little things that aren't in our circles that uh, tells me that we're not alone. <laughs> Okay, Elliot, good to, good to talk to you, my friend. All right, good job, bro. Okay. Talk to you. Bye-bye. 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 Bye. Okay. Let's have a look at this uh, Fox News story here. Real estate websites don't include crime data due to racial bias. Okay, I'll, I'll include a link. Oh, they're not giving me the story I want. Okay, I'm going to play a little from... Decoding the gurus from Frost on Bushido. Else, and I don't want to show any weakness whatsoever. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna trust that squirrely little guy at the the National Institutes of Health or whoever, wherever uh, Fauci's working these days. Yeah, I'm not gonna trust that guy. When I can take charge of my own health, I'm not gonna believe you about wearing a mask. I that that makes me. Well, let's just say, put it out there in R-rated form. That makes me this guy's bitch by wearing a mask. Whereas I'm a tough guy. I don't, I'll breathe my own air. So yeah, there's, I don't like the term toxic masculinity because that's kind of gotten twisted a little bit, hmm, but I sure. think, yeah, it, it is masculinity taken to a toxic level. And yeah, that, yeah, that seems to fit Joe Rogan's approach to health and wellness or, or in general, like brain performance. Like he's somebody who I think would be relatively open to recognizing the frauds and bullshit that exist in martial arts. He still has a bit of exoticism in him, but he knows an old Tai Chi master is not going to defeat an MMA fighter. But yet, he definitely does have the view that your health and and the response to this pandemic should be focused around vitamin D supplements and like working out. And there's, there's a kernel of truth, of course, being fit and healthy and not having vitamin deficiencies is important to health, but it definitely seems that there's an element broken in the sphere of martial arts that it's about taking supplements and he's also into cryotherapy and a whole bunch of out there things. But I, I guess I wonder, do you think that's something specific to him or is that more broader thing within say the MMA Okay, so I'm taking, Ricardo, great to see you. I'm taking a day off from manual labor. So I got to be honest, like it feels like every muscle I have is sore and tired. Uh, muscles that I didn't even realize I had because I haven't done manual labor in, in 30 years. So I'm sore, I'm tired, I'm taking the day off. And I've just been uh, doing very gentle uh, tension release exercises, uh, very gentle stretching like trying to locate, you know, all the aching parts of my body to do the appropriate exercises. Sometimes an exercise will will fix a, a particular weakness that's causing me a great deal of harm. So taking a day off from the manual labor, and then I'll get right, uh, right back to it, I think, uh, tomorrow. Looking at the chat. So Art Bell says, I'm wondering if this show is about losing YouTube from political chatter. Well, YouTube becomes more restrictive on speech than there's less thoughtful political discussion on YouTube. Where do you go after YouTube? Well, I think Rumble is better than YouTube, significantly better than YouTube, but I had two videos get an equivalent of a strike on Rumble, but I successfully appealed both of them. 
but even though I successfully appealed them, that's had an effect on me so that there are now certain, certain videos that I've deleted from Rumble just to avoid trouble and that I probably would not upload to Rumble. Uh, BitChute is pretty wide open as far as speech, and Odyssey I find very wide open as speech. So Jean-Francois Garapi suspended for a week or so from Twitter. Not sure if there's great, uh, great significance in that. So I was having a discussion with Half Galician. So he wanted to know, does information change people? And I would say that 98% of the time, information does not change people. Information just provides people with more reasons to do what they want to do. Have I been watching Millennial? No. So I'm spending pretty much all my time with my family and, and with friends. So very little time online. Luke, do you think Joe Rogan's anti-vax stance is genuine or just his way of keeping his listeners? I believe it is genuine. So, yeah, my back has not gone out. So I, I haven't even had any stabbing pains. It's just more fatigue and that I'm experiencing and tightness in, in many of my muscles. Yeah, the heyday of original political content on YouTube is gone. It is still good for music films and uh, TV shows and a lot of good uh, documentaries. So 98% of the time, I think uh, information does not change people. 2% of the time, maybe it does. And uh, Half Galician says, you know, what's your basis for that? And my basis is not born yesterday, the science of who we trust and what we believe by neuroscientist Hugo Mercier. I've mentioned this book a hundred times on the show. I provided, you know, lengthy excerpts from the book. If you want scientific studies and, and, uh, in-depth arguments about not born yesterday, the science of who we trust and what we believe. Essentially, we do not evolve to be gullible, right? So we can believe, you know, quote-unquote superstition, but if it doesn't affect our daily choices, then it's not really a belief that, that matters very much. But when it comes to making choices that have a direct impact on our lives, we do not evolve to be gullible. So that's the basis for my thinking about information. And that's why I don't buy the zombie bite theory of information, that if someone reads a book or watches a video, it just totally changes their trajectory. No, it just unleashes a trajectory that was already inside of them and just allows them to go in the direction they want to go. So Huckleishan says, I think my argument is nonsensical that assuages the guilt of those who make content on the margins of societal propriety. Well, my point is either true or false. Like you want to dismiss an argument on the basis of you can understand the motivations of the person who's arguing. I think that's really weak argumentation. On what basis are you saying these things? Well, on the basis that we have extensive surveys and studies of how much did Nazi propaganda, Soviet Union propaganda, or Chinese communist propaganda change people's minds, and it didn't. So we have extensive studies of how much does political advertising change people's minds. So maybe 1% of people get shifted by political advertising. So that's right in line with what I'm arguing. 98% of the time, information does not change people. 2% of the time, maybe it changes people. On what basis are you saying these things? Are you just making pronouncements with no bases for them? I've given so many bases for this. Over the past few months, I gave you a book. It's got uh, dozens of, of studies. It's got uh, very tightly made arguments. Obviously, we did not evolve to be gullible. We wouldn't be here if we evolved to be gullible. Half Galician says, I'm just vigilant what I consider people just uttering wisdom with no basis in that. Vigilant in what sense? Like, what books are you reading? There's no zombie bite theory of information, only information. Well, 
the argument that a YouTube video radicalizes someone is subscribing to the zombie bite theory of information, which is absurd. Information changes people. What, 100% of the time? So, so people who always vote Republican are going to start voting Democrat because they start reading the New York Times? That doesn't happen, except rarely, less than 2% of the time. The statement information doesn't change people is the assertion you're making. Information doesn't change people 98% of the time. That's a broad, blanket, non-falsifiable statement. You don't have a clue about the words you're throwing out. You're throwing out this word salad. You don't have a clue what, what they mean. Okay, non-falsifiable. I gave you all sorts of examples that would falsify my theory. So if political advertising changed 20% of people's votes, then I would be wrong. If propaganda changed 20%, 30%, 50% of people, then I'd be wrong. I'm arguing that propaganda, advertising, uh, information, videos, books, magazines, movies, only change about 2% of people from the direction that they're already head headed in. So I give an example after example after example that would falsify my position. The California after Ford left era. After Ford left, oof, COVID releases... Info to FDA, test showed women have far more side effects when they get the same dose of a vaccine as men. I don't know if that's true. Vivian showed up recently on the Daniel Senkowitz stream. She popped in for 20 seconds. So she popped into the chat on here and uh, said she was getting divorced. So two kids under age three, that's, that's tough. So Ethan Ralph is doing eight-hour streams. Millennial, Millennial Woes is doing his Millennial. I haven't been watching any of that. Media Hit says, after staying up all night, walking around San Francisco, a friend and I went to sleep in his car. We were woken by two cops. White cop was concerned for our safety. He said it was a bad neighborhood. So Queensland had virtually no COVID cases. Then they opened the borders. And I came across from New South Wales about 10 days ago. Now they're recording over 1,100 COVID cases a day. So New South Wales has just recorded uh, 11, 11, over 11,000 COVID cases. Uh, Victoria is recording about 2,500 COVID cases a day. Uh, when you see more of the older crowd on Facebook start using Instagram, then the young people get sick of it, even though most old people use Facebook and Instagram for their businesses and hobbies. It would take a modern miracle to get Luke to design thumbnails. He won't even do what Lionel Nation does. Periscope videos, you can't even fast forward or go back. Yeah, that is annoying. Trump should have taken over MySpace. Trump will regret when Trump runs for office. He may stay off even if invited back. Zero charges of insurrection for the January 6th riots, according to this chat comment by Art Bell. 611 still locked up. Right, this is uh, Frost, P-H-R-O-S-T, on Decoding the Gurus. Night of martial arts. When COVID hit and was starting to, to pick up, we had so many arguments, like on everything, Instagram of all places, with people that were like, no, we're going to keep training. We don't need to do this. I don't care what they say. And a lot of it was, you know, had to be more cynical. I want to keep my gym open. I want to keep making money because they're small 
businesses. And then you have the knuckle guys that flagrantly were like bragging about it. It's like, we're, we're holding gym. Look at us. We're here. Come train. Take, leave your masks off. We don't believe in any of that crap. And I, it, I don't know what the principle is. I forget what it is, but I know it translates over. If you think you're an expert in one area, then you automatically assume to some extent you're, you're an expert in another area. It's like you've earned a sort of expertise in martial arts or MMA or jujitsu. And so somehow that transfers over into immunology. So, and, <laughs> and for, I think those are excellent points by Frost. So back to my aches and pains. So back in Los Angeles, I had all these techniques for dealing with aches and pains. I had that activator, which would loosen up tight muscles or any muscle in a spasm. I just apply that activator, the, the chiropractic tool, and uh, it, would, it would dramatically reduce unnecessary muscular tension or muscular spasm. And I didn't bring it with me, doggone it. And also the flex bar. So my, my right elbow tends to get sore. And so using the flex bar, it, it lengthens the muscle away from the bone. That's the theory anyway. Most, most times when you're working a muscle, you make it tighter and shorter, which then pulls on bones, which then cause you problems. So I've had to, because I don't have a flex bar, I've been using my water bottle as a substitute flex bar. So see, I'm taking my left hand, pulling it over. So I'm lengthening the muscle there away from my elbow. So this is my, this is what I've been reduced to my my substitute flex bar. And then when I use the the machine for the potting mix, when I my brother wants me to put a a spade in it to to even it up, make sure all the elements of the potting mix are properly distributed. And so I'm able to put the spade in so that the the gyration of the potting mix pulls on the spade so that then I get length from from the muscles from my right elbow to my hand. So I notice if I just put that spade into the potting mix and just kind of leave it there and then get that tension and pressure lengthening the muscle away that the the pain in my right elbow just goes away for hours. So I'm probably putting the spade in the potting mix you know, a little longer than my brother would recommend, but really helps with the right elbow pain. But I sure miss my activator. So Josh Randall says Jack Murphy went down in a cuck fireball last week. He was exposed for doing gay porn. Well, I think there'd be there'd be some carryover between people involved in the porn industry and people involved in dissident politics because you're a dissident, you're outside polite society. So if you've been gone outside polite society to do gay porn, it may not be such a big deal to go outside polite society to do dissident politics. So the old Luke Ford whack pack is re-congregated at politically provoked. So this is uh, Frost on decoding the guru. A lot of these guys, they, they know one thing very well. And again, we go back to the masculinity thing. It's a ding against them to not know, to be reliant on somebody else who knows those things. And Joe Rogan's a good example of that. He doesn't see, he'll call out the bullshit in. I totally gave into peer pressure because like my family is so, they couldn't believe the crap I was putting on my YouTube channel. And so I was showing them that potting mix video that I made. And they would just say, this is so boring. Why would anyone watch this? And I gave in to peer pressure and I deleted it from YouTube. Like this was premium quality content of me mixing up the potting mix. And and I gave in to my family's pressure and I deleted it from YouTube. So Ricardo says, I'm sure Luke's brother is loving Luke's efficient potting mix technique. Well, I am 
entertaining my family. They, they do get, get a good laugh out of me. And so I was the Orthodox Jew who came to Christmas. So we had a big Christmas breakfast and, and a big uh, Christmas uh, dinner. And uh, there I was with my yarmulke, you know, eating the, the salad and the, and the fruit. In 2018, Jack Murphy was doxxed and lost his public teacher jobs. Was he always like this or did he go nuts? Well, I'm sure the best, the best predictor of the future is the past. So if someone's doing like dissident material in the present, then there were probably dissidents in the past as well. Can't believe you delete your work videos. They're your best content of 2021. I only deleted one. I just, I gave in and deleted the, the potting mix video. Why didn't I believe in myself? Where, where was my sense of self? I just gave in to my family's pressure on, on that one video. An MA or martial arts, MMA, whatever, because he's an expert in that. But he just can't translate that expertise over in, into uh, how you produce antibodies. So, yeah, that's interesting. I thought about the psychological basis for COVID skepticism a lot, but I've never actually thought about the masculinity angle. And you've made it quite clear that the the public health advice regarding dealing with the vaccine is to a certain kind of guy feels like something a pussy would do, right? <laughs> so this is Matt Brown. He is a psychologist at the University of Central Queensland. So he's probably just an hour's drive from me. So he's an Australian psychologist and a numbers guy. So he focuses on statistics. His main professional area of expertise is the, the harms that come from gambling. But he also researches conspiracy theories, religion, and alternative medicine. And uh, then the Irish-sounding guy is Christopher Cavanaugh, a Northern Irish cognitive anthropologist who lives in Japan. But this is Matt Brown speaking. And so, you know, <laughs> hide at home, close everything down. Oh, no, I'm scared. No, their idea is they don't care. They're tough. They're brave. They'll eat some spinach. So, yeah, that putting makes videos trash. Make more JQ debate content, says my family. Well, they, they'd like me to be an adult and... Uh, to do good quality content. And they were just not impressed with, with some of the crap that I was, I was putting up. They were not impressed with my potting mix technique. They were not impressed with my work ethic. So my brother wants me to, to put a crink into the garden hose and then individually water each pot. But there's like a thousand pots. And that would mean I'd have to like bend down, you know, onto each pot, or I'd have to like fight my way through the pots and the plants and, 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 and the mud to, to go to each part. And my attitude is, I just want to sit back because I'm listening to my Audible the whole time. I'm listening to uh, the biography of, of Joseph Stalin. And so I just want to sit back, stand back and just like put a nice spray on, on the hose and just let the spray go over all the plants. But my brother says that doesn't work. It doesn't provide the plants with enough moisture. So he wants me to put a crank in the hose, go to each part. But there are like a thousand pots. I'd have to like bend down. I might have to get, get dirty. I'd have to like pay attention to what I was doing. And I'm more of a big picture guy, right? This, this show is not me, you know, pouring water into one pot at a time. Like I'm just sitting back here on my niece's bed and I'm just spraying 
right? I'm just spraying my information all over you. I just like at the garden center, I just want to listen to my audible books and just like stand back and spray and like look around and chat with people and just like do a nice general spray. It's like, you know, heavenly mist that's coming down. And I figure if I like shoot the hose like right into the, to the top, you know, the netting up top of the garden center, then the water will just like drip down and it will drip on the leaves and, and some of it will eventually get into the pot. But like I keep getting instructed to like crank the hose and put it in each pot. Well, I was instructed once. And then like five minutes later, I was like standing back and doing the general spray thing. So who knew that spraying watering plants was so demanding? Like, I don't want to go cranking the hose and like going to each part and like bending over and then like forcing my way through all the plants, you know, and like they're, they're brushing up on me. They may be scratching me and I'm like forcing my way through, you know, through the, the maze of plants, like, like cranking the hose and putting it into each part. That's like total downer. I did not come to Australia at age 55, with my level of accomplishment, to be cranking a hose and individually putting water into each plotted plant. That's a total downer. That doesn't make me happy. Do I look like the type of person who'd be made happy cranking a hose and then watering each potted plant? That sucks. I'm more of a person who stands back. She'll be right, mate. No worries. Like listening to my audible book and just putting a nice, gentle, heavenly misting of water on the plants and just stand here and, and I like kind of seeing how far I can shoot the hose and and sometimes I try to you know shoot the hose through the forage and frankly only one plant has died right only one plant has died that you know maybe I I, I didn't water properly um, now my brother has had to like correct a lot of my mistakes so like a lot of plants apparently didn't get enough water so he's had to kind of go back no I was shown how to work the register but that's kind of a downer because you you have to be exact. Like like something, let's say it costs $9.50 and I put in like $9.54 because like the four is like it's really close to the zero or something. And so I was tried out on the cash register, but I made a few mistakes. And I mean, is it really necessary to be that exact? Like you have to put in the exact amount of money. But, you know, apparently people don't like it when you charge them the wrong amount if it's too much and then my brother wouldn't like it if I charge people too little. So they kind of realized I was not really well suited to be the checkout girl. You know, they, they thought, Oh, you know, we'll give 40 the Jewish piano or set him up on the cash register. You know, he's a convert to Orthodox Judaism. He's going to love it. I got to disavow the, the inherent anti-Semitism in, in, in that remark. But um, after a while, we all realized that uh, the cash register wasn't really my thing. So, I just like to go back to just putting a gentle mist on the plants, just like standing back and trying to shoot the shoot the hose, you know, 20 meters down the way and like shoot up to the meshing up above so that it you know, then drips down onto the plants. But my, my sense of responsibility and, and I love my brother and he's helped me out so many times in the course of my life. So I'm doing more and more of crinking the hose and like trying to, you know, water each individual part. But sometimes that's just such a downer. And go train, yeah, yeah. And if you yeah, notice in the early days of the virus, yeah, <laughs> but the early days of the lockdown protests, all these guys in their tactical knockoff gear were, were protesting the lockdowns, and they were wearing masks. 
They were wearing masks because it hadn't been politicized yet and because masks look cool. The military wears masks. I have tactical <laughs> smogs and all that. Okay, from the chat, I got to disavow. Luke's going to get himself fired from his own brother. It's like when my father, after he died, blocked me on Facebook. Very, very hurtful. And then Luke's going to get himself fired and then deported back to third world America. Luke is in paradise, but if he loses his work visas, back to the L.A. favela. Luke is listening to a very naughty book on Audible, while watering is the most base thing I've ever heard of. Luke got kicked out of his first synagogue when the rabbi discovered he couldn't operate a cash register. Oh, disavow. Like crap. And they were like, oh, look. And then the minute, the minute it becomes, like, fast forward a few months, and those assholes were in the Capitol building, not wearing masks, committing insurrection, and so desperate to be aligned with the politics that they wouldn't cover their faces. Yeah, yeah I've been tempted to start sniffing petrol to try to deal with the, the muscle pain. But uh, I, I've been flirting a bit with some of the female customers, so... That may be another reason why I've been moved off the register. It's just like this woman came in and she had this really interesting accent. And then it turned out she was from Rhodesia. And so I wanted to talk about some of the differences between Rhodesia and Zimbabwe. And then what could possibly account for those differences between Rhodesia and Zimbabwe. And then I wanted to know how she liked it in Tenem Sands, what her social life was like. And we were just having a great time. So... Okay, I was like a little overly friendly and might have said some inappropriate things while I was at the cash register. So I got banished to the back to uh, to build the potting mix, assemble the potting mix and and work with the dirt and pot plants and, and do the watering. So I kind of flunked the whole cash register, you know, be the checkout chick, you know, the, the, the front person. I'm not not necessarily the best equipped to be a front person. And oh, this is the other thing. Why is everyone like shushing me? Like I'm standing and delivering like my my wisdom about life and my insights into you know relationships between men and women and black people and white people and Jews and Christians. No, I'm just going everywhere in Australia sharing my wisdom, sharing the gospel of Luke, and I keep getting shush. It's like shh, you can't say that here. Shh, shh, you know, pipe down, pipe down. It's so bad. That, that I've been reduced to coming on this live stream. I've just got a live stream now because when I start sharing these cutting edge insights in the real world, people keep shushing me and they move me away from the cash register and they, they have me working with the dirt and the watering. Figure that yeah, one. We, I, it probably relates to the points that you've already made for us, but somebody on our Patreon, when they heard that you were on, wanted to ask about the Gracie's response to, and I know there's a lot of Gracies, right? They have a lot of kids. So, Okay, so Australia more politically correct than America. So political discourse and elite discourse is more politically correct in Australia than in America, but regular people are less politically correct. So there are a lot of Aussies with more charm than teeth, and they're not very politically correct. Also, Aussies like to laugh. So much of it's not mean-spirited, it's just... You know, it's just jovial. So regular Aussies, less politically correct than Americans, because also Australians don't walk around fearing about getting sued. So Americans have much more fear about litigation than, than Australians. So Australians are more easygoing that way. But media discourse, elite discourse, more politically correct in Australia than in America. So the uh, Decoding the Gurus, they did a special show on Joe Rogan and Jocko Willink. 
the, Jocko, the former Navy SEAL who did a book on what extreme ownership. Writes books, kind of giving self-help advice geared primarily probably towards men and fitness tips and all those kind of things. So we thought this discussion would be good because one thing that is quite obvious about Joe is that he's a manly man. He is a bro, if ever a bro existed, right? He's in the MMA, smoking cigars and shooting guns while driving a tank. That's he's Joe. A, he's a man's man, man. Yeah, he's a little bald, stocky pit bull. He has a background in MMA and he talks to tough people. He likes to smoke cigars while he's doing it, right? And Jocko Willink is an ex-Navy SEAL, a guy that gets up at 4 a.m. to do a thousand push-ups and bench press his family <laughs> before you've even had your toast, right? He's better than you. <laughs> and so if we're going to get the full testosterone experience, why not combine the two of them into mm. a single episode? Well, I think this is an important point because Joe Rogan has released almost 2,000 episodes, so a huge amount of content to select from. And A no, no. Thing, but I, I, I haven't been tracking them, but I get the impression from this that what you... Whoops, I was totally muted. My mistake. Damn. So, yeah, the, the, the birds are singing uh, here before 4 a.m. So I'm getting up at 4 a.m. every day. And and then the sun's coming up about 4.20, 4.30 a.m. And I wash my face, nasal rinse. Don't take a shower then because I don't want to wake everyone else up. Uh, so doing my strain, counter strain, aka positional release exercise as well, listening to a 12-step meeting or a 12-step uh, big book talk. Uh, I have scheduled phone sessions with my sponsees, eat a breakfast of muesli with full cream milk and uh, walnuts and uh, some uh, protein powder, a couple of mangoes and some passion fruit. Then my workday begins about 7 a.m., work until noon, come back have a sandwich, a couple more mangoes, maybe an ice cream, and uh, then back to, back to work until five. So 10-hour days, high-quality manual labor. 
this is Decoding the Gurus on Joe Rogan. We chose these ones because Rocco, Jocko, I keep getting mixed up. Yeah, I, I like that you keep calling them Rocco. So, you know, <laughs> just go with it. It's Rocco, Rocco and Jocko. Jocko, Bocco, whatever. It's really similar to Joe in many ways. So it's a good choice, I think, in terms of highlighting, like allowing Joe to be Joe for our coverage to be more about Joe rather than, like, you know, he's interviewed physicists and scientists and all kinds of, he, he's, he's a big name. He's got a huge audience, so he gets big names. And some of them are very good, some of them are very bad. But we chose this one not because it was, at least I knew very little about it, and not because it's particularly super bad or good or anything like that, just because it seemed like a meeting of minds. Two like-minded guys, we could we can get more of the Joe vibe. The other thing I have to mention is that when you told me, oh, Matt, you have to go and listen to the episode with Joe and Jocko, what, Rocco? Jocko. Jocko, Jocko, you Jocko. got it right. <laughs> Jocko. I didn't know that he'd interviewed Jocko 12 months ago. So there I was, and I was working my way through it. I listened to three hours of the whole thing. And you know this, Chris, because I was texting you and typing to yeah, you. you know, I got my, a, live, a live tweak DM of your what, experience. And you didn't correct me. You, you were like, you were nodding. Oh, yeah, this is good. You, you know, you know, it makes sense or whatever. It turned out, of course, I was listening to the wrong one. So I had to listen to the new one another three hours. So I've had six hours of Joe Rogan in the last 48 hours. Uh, yeah. The, the amazing thing about this is all of the things that Matt said that they were talking about are the exact things that they talk about in this episode. <laughs> so the one that we've looked at, so the episode we are looking at is 1740, Jocko Willink, the Joe Rogan experience. The one Matt watched was episode 1492 on YouTube. And just a note as well that I had trouble getting the relevant clips because it's hard to get audio from Spotify. I was helped out in that respect by Steve Donnelly, who's a listener and also a kind Patreon supporter. So thanks to Steve. He has a YouTube channel called Climate Change Chat for Realists, which I encourage people to check out. In any case, when I talked to you, you mentioned that you watched it on YouTube. And I was like, oh, really? But it's, it's not on YouTube. Where'd you get that? And you're like, no, no, it, it, it's there. It's easy. I'll show you. And I'm like, oh dear. Oh dear. And then, you know, check like, Matt, were they talking about armored cars and armored cars? Like, <laughs> so yeah. So was- Matt has had six hours, but as we find out, there's a lot of overlap in the content. They might have said the exact same thing 12 months ago. They, they even tell some of the same anecdotes. It's crazy. They cover the same ground. But yeah, this is about the new one. So if you want to listen to it, you have to subscribe to Spotify, I think, or something. Yeah. Okay. And so let's get into it. Okay. I've got some uh, video highlights. Here's a little Nick Fuentes. Really? Just think about it this way. You know, a gay person, gay people do date girls all the time. Really? And when I said on Elijah Schaefer's show, and they said, have you ever been in a romantic relationship? Have you ever had sex with a girl? And I said, no. If you name searched me on Twitter, as I always do, all these gay people are coming out and saying, I've had more girlfriends than Nick. I've, I've had sex with more girls than Nick. So like I said last week, not only is, not only is that thinking flawed, but actually, it's the reverse. That actually makes me really more heterosexual than anybody. If if we're being if we're really being honest, 
never having a girlfriend, never having sex with a woman, really makes you more heterosexual. Because honestly, dating women is gay. Having sex with women is gay. Yes. Oops. Okay. Yeah, I'll say my as a start, one of the things that people say about Joe all the time is a couple of things. They say that, oh, he's just, you know, he's just, he doesn't say that he is a reliable source. He's just a, you know, he's just a meathead and he says don't trust him. He's just throwing his opinions out there. He's not a political commentator. That can be, he's just an ordinary guy. That's why we like him. I'm going to challenge that that is an accurate representation of what Joe does on this episode. And I'm also going to say that people point out that he has guests from all over the political spectrum. He has pro-vaccine doctors and he has left-wing. He had Bernie Sanders. He, he likes people from across the spectrum. And I'll just, to push back to that, you know, we don't do a survey of all the content, but I will say... A lot of people have noticed the editorial line in Joe's content, the topics that he returns to week in, week out. It doesn't mean he's never going to have an episode with Steve Pinker or he's never going to have an episode with Neil deGrasse Tyson or or even a left-wing commentator. But I will say I've listened to a lot of his content over the years. If you cannot notice the consistent narratives and the... the okay, the chat says that... Uh... John David Ebert's former Decline of the West podcast co-host Daryl Cooper started a podcast with Jocko Willink. Oh, okay. Extreme ownership. Joe Rogan only streams twice a week. Luke used to do daily several-hour streams. The obvious political through line in this content. I think you're not... People always joked about Nick Fuentes' orientation. It was his real-life friendship with... Catboy, that was the final straw. Not listening very hard, and it will be illustrated in some of these clips, I think. Okay, so let's get into it. So, plenty of options about where to start, Matt, but one thing that Joe and Jocko, to some extent as well, I think, could get compared to, um, although they wouldn't like this, is Joe has been called Goop for Man, right? Because he's in the alternative medicine and self-improvement, so... That is a great line for, for Joe Rogan and Jocko Willink and, and basically the populist right, much of the populist right is essentially Goop for men. Goop is Gwyneth Paltrow's website and, and business. And, and yeah, Joe Rogan, Jocko Willink, the populist right, essentially Goop for men, uh, Tim Pool. You're not going to get Goop promoting bow hunting and gun shooting, but in the same respect, there are parallels. Yeah. Joe Rogan is good for men. Tim Pool is good it's for Tim. men. Tim. Democrats are making themselves look bad. Let's go back over the evidence. We've got Ben Shapiro speaking on Fox News and Bill Maher making comments during a late night talk show. What utility do these events serve for drawing robust conclusions about economic policy? Well, very little, because these people are what economists would refer to as TV entertainers. They don't write policy. They're not part of the government, and they are actually inclined towards saying exaggerated hyperbolic stuff as part of their jobs. I mean, 
Bill Maher's comment was literally greeted by laughter from a live studio audience. One way you get rid of Trump is a crashing economy, so please bring on the recession. Sorry if that hurts people, but... This quote by Bill Maher is brought up not just once, but multiple times as Tim develops his monologue. Bill Maher even said, bring on the recession. When we look at statements from, say, Bill Maher, where he wishes for a recession... Look, I actually like Bill Maher, I do. But he said, bring on the recession. Bill Maher, on his show wished for a recession for no reason other than to depose Donald Trump. Look, Bill Maher said, bring on the recession. He's now saying, yeah, but look, Trump is a bad person. We can survive a recession. He's still calling for a recession. And you have the left going, bring on the recession. We hear this same polemic being repeated by Tim over and over again. So this is a great YouTube channel, Timber on Toast. They did like a three-part series on... Uh, the ideas of Dave Rubin. Bill Maher said bring on the recession. He hates Trump. He's calling for a recession because he doesn't like Trump. He said bring on the recession. Did you hear him say that, everyone? The statement loses all informational value after the first time we hear it. But through repetition, it gains a kind of rhetorical value. Interestingly enough, this is a rhetorical tool which we would most frequently associate with politicians trying to land talking points in people's minds when they're giving speeches. And it's interesting to see Tim employing the same devices in his reporting because they are, in many ways, at odds with his aim of straight-talking, fact-based journalism. But Timpole's rhetoric is such an interesting can of worms that it's going to have to be a topic for another video. The final piece of information Tim reports to his audience is a quote from Nancy Pelosi, who says that the Democrats are not afraid to push economic policies based on climate change, which will cause collateral damage to American voters and the economy. The awkward thing is that I agree with many of the positions of the populist right, but we have to... We have to speak the truth here, guys. We have to call a spade a spade. Like Tim Pool, Joe Rogan, uh, most of the populist right crowd are the intellectual equivalent of Gwyneth Paltrow. Economy. For me, I'm like, yeah, I get it, right? If Nancy Pelosi wants to enact environmental regulations and it's going to cause damage to the economy, I understand why that is bad. I understand why people are not going to vote for Democrats because of that. Tim is getting his information from this article, which appeared in the Washington Times, a religious conservative newspaper. The publication frames Pelosi's quote as if she's directly advocating for climate change policies which go against the interests of American voters. But if you look at Pelosi's quote in full context, that reading seems incomplete. Remember that what we said was we wanted to uh, pass an overwhelming number of jobs in order to protect all of our, our society. I mean, this is this is about prosperity. The, the, so anyway, I'm, I'm, I think that, that we owe the American people to be there for them, for, the, for their financial security, respecting the dignity and worth of every person in our country. And if there's some um, collateral damage for some others who do not share our view, well, so be it. But it's... So this excellent video by Timber on Toast is called uh, Tim Pool Chaotic News Analyst. So you could also just call him uh, Goop, Goop for Men. And, and one of the obvious ones is like the fixation on supplements, right? So, so when Jocko comes into the studio, he, he's drinking his energy drink. And let's listen to this exchange. Jocko Go? What's in these things? A little bit of goodness. It's, it's I got a little bit of caffeine in it, 95 milligrams, like a cup of coffee. It's got mm. thermobromine. 
B6, B12. What's thermal bromine? Stuff that helps you open up your, your capillaries and, and l- allow more blood flow to your system. Ooh, it's tasty. <laughs> oh, this is nice. So, Matt, you know, there, I just wanted to highlight when we pointed out to Michaela Peterson, she was selling her range of goods, right, for after uh, hangover cures and pick-me-ups and so on. And this is very similar, right? Jocko has devised his own energy drinks with bromines and it, it has this amount of caffeine and so on. And mm-hmm. it, like, so I did notice parallel that like when Gwyneth Paltrow has her friends on, they talk about the perfumes and detox drinks that they've made. It's just another version of that, right? Except it's mm-hmm. energy drinks and whiskey. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And Joe Rogan is obviously very much into that health and self-optimization and fitness and all of that stuff. Jocko even more so as a kind of a self-help kind of guy is very much into stuff about teaching leadership. He's really big on leadership. So yeah, in in many ways, it is like a masculine version of Brene Brown, because if you hear Jocko, for instance, talking about leadership, he's talking about empowering other people. And it's not necessarily bad, by the way. A bit like Brene Brown, a little bit insipid for my tastes, but not particularly bad. Let's listen to an example of that. When you're in a leadership position, a lot of times from a traditional, what people imagine a leader to be, it's the person that's standing up on a pedestal and telling everyone what to do and putting out the word. But the, a real leader, a real leader spends most of their time actually listening to what's going on and listening to input from the team and seeing how they perceive things and, and understanding what they think the team should do. And then occasionally making a suggestion or pointing in a direction or asking an earnest question about the way we think we should do it. And then the team goes, oh, yeah, cool. So yeah. listening, listening leadership, Matt, hmm. there's also... The particular brand, which like is different from Brene Brown, but you know, similar, you can hear a lot of the same self-help wide is this concept of extreme ownership as well. So here's him describing that. Well, that's, that's the first book that I wrote about leadership, extreme ownership. And you have to learn how to do that. And our politicians never do that. Mm -hmm. They never say, Hey, you know what? This was my fault. I misjudged this. I underestimated that. I made this mistake. Here's what I'm gonna do to fix it. Instead, it's instant blame game. Right. It's right. instant blame game. It's bitch shit. Hmm. It's bitch shit. Matt. Yeah, that's. <laughs> I think that that is, for Joe, that is the worst put down you could possibly use to describe someone. That being womanly and weak is is just. There's nothing being worse than that. Yeah, being a bitch. Yeah. So Jocko is is all about in, in both episodes I listened to. It was full of anecdotes of SEAL teams and storming buildings and throwing yeah so anecdotes um aren't strong evidence right you get an affidavit that's not strong evidence right you you can't just reason from an anecdote about how someone got over covid to then recommending that for everybody else bombs and whatever it's just it's goop for guys it's just it's just the equivalent of uh, gwyneth paltrow right it's that level of intellectual honesty a lot of what he does is sort of takes the lessons of leadership and you know strength and preparing the situational awareness or, or whatever and applying it to life. But you know, if I take out my impression was if I took out all of the just the rampant testosterone and militant vibes, 
it was actually pretty standard, a bit like Brene Brown. It was pretty, pretty standard, self-helpy psychology of leadership and so on. Yeah. 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 So Jocko Willing, it's just, you know, standard stuff, just like Brene Brown and a lot of other you know, popular uh, gurus, but there's nothing special there, like uh, extreme ownership. Like there, there are terrific stories. All right. And uh, a lot of these people from military backgrounds or Navy SEAL backgrounds, they, they have great stories and it's very inspiring. But the actual content is not uh, unique or profound. There's also this thing, Matt, about when we look at the group episode, you'll hear people talk about custom made clothing or, you know, the handcrafted goods that you can purchase in the store or whatever. And people like to make fun of that. But I just want to, again, highlight the male version of this. Just listen to them discuss Jocko's boots that he makes. They're solid. <laughs> They're very nice, handcrafted boots. Like, you feel it when you pick them up. You're like, this is a real handmade boot. Like, because it is legitimately a yeah. handmade boot. Yeah. It, you got to break them in. You know, mm-hmm. you wear them for a few days and break them in. It's yeah. nice. They're nice. If you ever get a chance to go to Maine and see some of the machines that are used to make these boots, they're, you know, the alien statue you just got? Yeah. They look like that. They legitimately look that. There's millions of these little parts that hold the leather and pull mm-hmm. it and put, and then a big machine comes in and rips and pull. It's, I was watching it's crazy. a documentary. Yeah. No, I mean, but look, Chris, I mean, isn't this just like the hipster type thing? And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty widespread idea that hand. Handmade boots, only $300 plus, guys. They're artisanal. Made is better. Made locally. Locally sourced is better. You know, real people in your local town. It's put in the sort of the, the bro kind of tough guy mold, but it's it's kind of hipsterism, isn't it? Yeah, but that's what I... So you might be wondering, do I disagree with the decoding the gurus, guys? Yeah, they are center-left. They want a world where there are no in-groups and out-groups. Like for Matt Brown, that's the ideal... No in-groups, no out-groups. Essentially, it's the, the lyrics from the John Lennon song, Imagine. Now, imagine there's no religion. Now, th- th- this is essentially you know, the, the uh, worldview of these hosts, so I don't agree with them. You know, Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us. Imagine there's no countries, nothing to kill or die for, no religion too. Imagine all the people living in peace. Right? This is the worldview of the Decoding the Guru's Uh, two academics here and i don't agree with them but i don't tune in and listen to them because i agree with their worldview i tune in and listen to them because i appreciate the way they decode various online gurus you don't have to agree with the decoding the guru hosts to benefit from their analysis so these guys are on the left i'm on the right but they've got some good stuff here i want the highlight is like (laughs) you don't get to feel better than the artisan guys quaffing their $100 coffee beans because <laughs> you have the same tendency. It's just directed at knives and they <laughs> might talk about the various the knobs and whistles on their machines that make their coffee. You talk about it when it's like the way the leather is hammered and crunched <laughs> through these machines. And again, Matt, just another illustration. This, this clip I called Rusty machines and handcrafted knives. So uh, <laughs> listen to this. 
We're that, number 215 yeah. in the fastest growing companies in America last year. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's it's awesome. But awesome. <laughs> you're making great shit. You know, I, like those boots are fucking legit. Like when I got them, I was like, hold on. Like, <laughs> so fucking legit boot. Hand stitched. You know, like I love shit like that. I love, I'm I'm into like mechanical things and I'm into crafted things. Like I love handcrafted you gotta come knives. To the factory, and, man. I you got to come to the factory. You you would freak out if you saw all the, the people working there. Salt of the earth, America. Americans just and then the the machines that have been brought back from from rusty piles of junk into functional machines that are creating this stuff. Well, I just I just have to say that I actually think that Joe would get some pleasure out of imagining that there's rust in his shoe mixed with the sweat of real Americans after working hard at the factory with their hammers and the sweat is flying off and it went into the Lello as his boot was being pulled for the machine. Like, they really like this shit. (laughs) (laughs) He really likes the boots. Made with the blood and sweat of American patriots. But, you know, like we were just saying, it's all... But it's all cosmetic. I mean, that stuff is cosmetic, right? The cultural signaling. No. No, ma. It makes the boot. The soul of the boot. You know? You can feel it. It's it's just better. It's like a... Fine Italian suit crafted for your specific body, tailored to fit your foot. It's, yeah, it's not like nah. those. I, like, I, feel the, I feel the same way about the pods on the Barbie, you know, when it's been made by a real <laughs> Australian and he's burned himself and he's, I could see the band aid on his hand yeah, because he's, the he's blood burned is it. seeped into that. He gives it, you know, he's a hunter. The human blood that just comes into the picture somewhere. And so I was uh, contradicting myself earlier on the stream. So I was talking about how I could understand why social media companies would move to restrict the speech even of President Donald Trump as a result of January 6th. So you have an event, you have January 6th Capitol Hill riots, and as a result of that, uh, social media companies decided we need to crack down on misinformation. So I don't believe that there was significant voter fraud in the 2020 American presidential elections. But Donald Trump made that a major talking point and a lot of other Republicans made it a major talking point. And once you make the argument that the election was invalid, was stolen, then there are no longer any moral restrictions that you can ask of people because essentially their country has been stolen from them. So to me, it was completely understandable that social media companies would then restrict uh, speech that was, say, pushing a false narrative about electoral fraud. Now, my own preference is for a little more free speech than what the major social media companies allow, but I understand that reaction to the January 6th riots. Now, I talked in shorthand about people being radicalized by misinformation, which would then be the very opposite of what I was saying earlier about how we did not evolve to be gullible. But I, I was using shorthand to make the point that just like most Democrats thought that the 2016 election was invalid because of Russian interference. And there's no factual basis for believing that there was substantial Russian interference in the 2016 election that changed the ultimate outcome. No factual basis, just like there's no factual basis for holding that the 2020 elections were were stolen. But I can understand social media companies wanting to, to crack down on that these inaccurate narratives when they saw the results of the January 6th Capitol Hill riots. So I don't believe the Capitol Hill riots 
and that sort of behavior was precipitated by misinformation is that people who lost a close election, just like the Democrats lost a close election, then go looking for an explanation for what was unexplainable to them. So people are particularly susceptible to believing that their team was screwed over by the refs. So Democrats believing the 2016 election and Republicans believing the 2020 election, both them believing these elections were stolen, is the equivalent of a sports fan who believes that his team lost because of the refs. And so people naturally have an instinct to be partisan, and when things don't go their way, they're going to go looking for explanations. And if those explanations are not backed up by rigorous data, that's not going to be a problem for 98% of people. So people's minds weren't changed by information regarding the validity of the 2020 election. It's the partisans felt let down. They couldn't deal with the reality of their team having lost. So then they went seeking out explanations. And so when they can find explanations on YouTube and in mainstream media or mainstream big tech, that then solidifies them in the path that they already want to go. So I don't believe there was misinformation that created the January 6th riots. It was quote-unquote misinformation that people embraced to to provide some basis for how they already wanted to believe. They already wanted to believe that the country was being stolen from them. Democrats wanted to believe that in 2016. Republicans wanted to believe that in 2020. It's painful when your team loses a very important match. And so people then go looking for a basis for their feelings, right? So it wasn't the information that changed people. People had feelings that they then sought out information to buttress those feelings. And so that's the longer explanation of what I summarized as people being radicalized by misinformation. All right. Timber on toast. Here he is on Dave Rubin's Battle of Ideas number three. Oh my God, Stevie, you ruined my day. Timber on toast. Stefan Molyneux. And now we're going to discuss Dave's interview with Stefan Molyneux. For anyone who is familiar with Stefan, you'll understand what I mean when I say there is much to talk about. Stefan's a YouTube celebrity who makes videos which at a glance would appear to be about a broad range of topics, from philosophy to history to media analysis. But if you were to watch just a handful of them, you'd very quickly realize that Stefan basically has two big talking points. One, the white race is becoming extinct, and two, minorities and women are to blame. So uh, Josh Randall says in the chat, I didn't know Luke was pro-censorship. I'm not pro-censorship, but I understand people making decisions. So I'm more interested in understanding why people act the way they do than in morally condemning them. So my own preference is for more robust free speech, but I understand reality. And reality is that you build a platform and you then want to have some control over how that platform gets used, right? So it's, it's a question of business. It's a question of what is good business. So content moderation, as this UCLA professor says, is primarily a tool of brand management for firms. 
So I want to understand why people act the way they do. I don't believe that social media censorship is primarily a partisan political matter. I think it's primarily a business decision and it's primarily a matter of brand management. So Facebook, YouTube, Twitter assess what risk are they willing to take by having material on their platforms that most people would regard as distasteful and abhorrent. And the type of things that most people regard as distasteful and abhorrent change over time. So after the January 6th riot, you know, certain things become distasteful and abhorrent to many people that weren't distasteful and abhorrent prior to that. After Charlottesville or after the, the shooting in Christchurch where, what, 30-plus Muslims were murdered in mosques in, in Christchurch or the, the mass shooting in Walmart in, in, in southern Texas, right? After real-world events happen where people who carrying out the mass murder espouse certain positions – it's understandable why social media companies would want to exercise brand management and to distance themselves from the type of talking points that are being used by mass murderers. And the entirety of his content consists of repackaging and rehashing these talking points over and over and over and over again. Just to give you a taster, here's a clip from his video about Star Wars. Luke Skywalker is dying out and there is no next generation. And that, of course, is the boomers, followed by the kids who aren't having children, uh, the demographic decline among the whites that is happening in Europe and in North America. Now here's a clip from his video about the children's film Zootopia. Women who universally rejected male aggression would be quickly weeded out of the gene pool since they would refuse to mate with or raise the children of the males who conquered their tribe. Traditionally, male concerns about potential aggression from other tribal males has been buried under a treacly morass of anti-empirical world-hug multiculturalism. And here's a clip from his video, Shocking Facts About Women. Women are voting, and they're far less informed than men. Yes, you can make an effort to understand why people act the way they do and why they say the things they do and the business decisions that they make. doesn't mean you have to like their decisions or their words doesn't mean you have to agree with them, but I'm more interested in understanding why people do the things they do than in moral condemnation. Moral condemnation is easy. Far less informed than men. And inevitably, though, when a deficiency, a significant deficiency. And a funny question from the chat, has uh, Stefan Molyneux's family defood him yet? So defood means to cut all ties with your family. That's uh, something that Stefan Molyneux is famous for for supporting if, if your family's quote-unquote toxic, then maybe if your family's quote-unquote abusive, which could just mean, you know, saying mean jokes to you, then maybe you should cut ties with them. In women, women tend to vote more for the left and women are more uninformed. Basically, it doesn't matter which of Stefan's videos... So I'm sure it's against YouTube's terms of service to say that, uh, that there are any categories where women are less than men. But it would make sense to me that men are more knowledgeable than women in some areas of life and women are more knowledgeable than men in other areas of life. So Stefan Molyneux saying that women are less informed on matters of politics, to me, that's an empirical matter. Either it's true or it's not. And it should not be something that he's condemned for saying. As you click on, you're going to get some kind of dogmatic lecture about breeding and gene pools and the preservation of the white race. Regarding Stefan's interview on the Rubin Report, I want to start with something small, uh, which is discussed near the end of the episode. Dave and Stefan spend a bit of time promoting Stefan's new book, The Art of the Argument. Here's how that conversation goes. 
this book, I mean, I'm hugely influenced, of course, by Socrates and what does Socrates do? He didn't take a PhD, sit in an ivory tower and talk about the ethics of the Babylonians, right? I mean, Socrates went down into mm. the marketplace and talked to people about what mattered to them. As a reason I do a call. So Dennis Prager went on Stefan Molyneux's show. So a lot of big names have talked to Stefan Molyneux publicly. Show for like three or four hours yeah. a week because I want to talk to people and find out how philosophy can help them and, and what they're struggling with and, and what matters to them. And right at the beginning of the book, by the way, you mentioned, you know, you say that basically this isn't some academic paper that's just like some flimsy nonsense because yeah, we yeah. see this now all the time. Yeah, These yeah. academic papers that get peer reviewed and they're the most. Was it? Now, Stefan's books are all self published and I watched a video by an ex listener of his that you should watch too, by the way. I'll link it in the description that highlighted an interesting trend. When you look at the Amazon review page for Stefan's book, you see that there are a few reviewers who've taken the time to properly critique it, going into the structure, the strength of the arguments, and Stefan's general grasp of philosophical concepts. There's another reviewer who's a philosophy lecturer at the University of St. Andrews. These reviewers gave the book one or two stars, whilst on the other hand, there are a whole load of five-star reviewers who don't talk about the book's content at all, but make very hyperbolic statements like, Stefan is a great man. Another great book from a man that knows. So I'm not somebody who likes to say, oh, I stand behind so-and-so or I condemn so-and-so. So I'm sure there are lots of things that Stefan Molyneux has said that I agree with, lots of things that he said that I disagree with, lots of things that he's done, done that I would respect and a lot of things that he's done that I would uh, have contempt for. So I'm not someone who goes, oh, yeah, thumbs up on this person or thumbs down on that person. That's not generally my approach was what's going on brilliant no wait brilliant i shook this book and gold rained out value from this book would overflow a fruit machine's out tray i would venture that the reason why stefan speaks so resentfully about phd academics in their ivory towers might be because his books don't seem to do very well with that crowd 80 percent of papers in social sciences never get cited once not once they just the library has to buy them they stick them in a shelf somewhere and kind of makes me wish i went into academia this is something which I feel is worth going slightly off topic to address. The social sciences are an immensely broad field of academia with many branches and applications. Social scientists are involved in aspects of public life which most people are often completely unaware of. They work with law enforcement to make processes more efficient. They identify the failings of our education systems and implement policies to make sure the geniuses of the future don't slip through the net. They analyze migration patterns and propose implementable solutions aimed to fix the issues we face as a society with multicultural integration. With advancements in AI, the work that social scientists do is becoming... That's awesome. Thank you, social science, for helping us with multicultural integration. So, yeah, if we're going to have a multicultural society, I'd rather we, we get along. But... Uh, some groups don't tend to get along very well with other groups, right? Not every group is equally suited for being in a particular type of society, right? Japan tends to be very Japanese, right? There are other groups that I don't think would be a particularly great fit for Japan. Australia is a particular type of society. There are some non-Australian groups out there who are not a good fit for Australia. Something more important than ever to ensure that as we move forward, the technology we're creating is ethical and brings maximum benefit to us as a society. There are many people like Dave who seem to have this weird animosity for social sciences. 
And I'm guessing it's because they probably think of it as just a trivial field of study which only turns out stupid publications. You know, study confirms owning pets is good for our health. Study finds homophobic people die younger. Study says people who get laid more make more money. Sex study exposes how we get down and dirty. I discuss with the kinky Jacqueline Glynn and the freaky Whitney Mixter. You know, these really trivial clickbait articles which Dave Rubin's content entirely revolved around before he found his true calling as Jordan Peterson's travelling sidekick. You often find that the most vocal critics of the social sciences have very little knowledge of what the research in this field actually entails. And I think this might be true in Dave's case. Anyway, let's get into the mind of Stefan Molyneux. A really useful concept to know about when analysing the things Stefan says is a fallacy called the Mott and Bailey. The phrase Mott and Bailey comes from medieval castles which had a particular structure. A gated courtyard area outside, the bailey, where the main settlements were, and then a heavily fortified stone keep high up on the hill, the mot, where everyone would retreat to when hostile forces approached. The bailey is vulnerable, open to attack, but the mot is safe, unassailable. The mot and bailey fallacy revolves around trying to defend a controversial position, a bailey, by defending a loosely connected common sense assertion which is impossible to argue against, a mot. An example of this would be if I said that women don't belong in the workplace, and then when asked to defend my position, I said, you can't deny that there are biological differences between men and women. You can see how the two concepts here could be perceived to be linked, but they are in fact two entirely separate arguments. The trick is to get everyone thinking that by defending the easy common sense assertion, I've also proven my far more controversial position to be true. Stefan Molyneux is someone who does this quite a lot. Dave kicks off the interview by asking him what he considers to be the most controversial thing. And I think this is an excellent uh, critique of Stefan Molyneux. This is true. And and a lot of people try to play this double game. Thing he talks about. What would you say is the thing that people uh, find most controversial about you? Is there one topic hmm. that you consistently hit on that you think people either give you the most flack or you think is sort of wading into the most dangerous Gosh, if territory? I, if I knew that, Dave, I would hit on it more. <laughs> well, I've got a, I've got a couple. I've got a couple right here, but yeah. I thought I'd, I'd throw that to you. I first. think. I would say I would say that the concept well, so so there's some abstract ones and there's some personal ones. Yeah. And people tend to get most upset about the personal ones because that's where people have kind of like a stake in, in their life and in their world. So for me for sure, I think people get most upset when I talk about, say for instance, you don't have to have abusive people in your life. Now you might be thinking, what's controversial about Stefan's position? And you're right, there's absolutely nothing controversial about what Stefan said here. His sentiment about cutting abusive people out of your life is something we read about all the time in liberal media. It's the bread and butter of millennial blogs. However, Stefan is merely hiding behind this universally approved sentiment to avoid having to discuss the real reason why this is a controversial subject for him. Stefan's had a philosophy podcast called Free Domain for as long as podcasts have existed, with a very avid fan base of listeners. In 2008, The Guardian published an article telling the story of Tom, a teenager who was a frequent listener to Stefan's show, who abruptly in the middle of his A-levels left home and never saw or spoke to his parents ever again. Stefan was asked about this in a BBC radio interview after the article was published. Are you telling me that you would never suggest to somebody like Tom that he should turn his back on his family? You would never suggest that he should do that? In the conversation I had with Tom... I simply reminded him that the relationship is optional. I said, you can stay, you can go, but it is a choice that you should make. No, no, but I'm, ju I'm just asking. 
So I don't hold Stefan responsible if people decide to cut off their parents, even if you recommended that they do so. So I would say he has less than 50% culpability, but more than 0% culpability, right? He, he had some effect, but he was not the primary determinant, right? People who are determined to stay in contact with their family would not turn against their family simply because Stefan Molyneux said so. Asking you whether or not you ever suggested to Tom that he should go and turn his back on his family and cease all communication with them. Did you suggest no. that at all? No. You did not? No. We've got the audio of Stefan's conversation with Tom, so we can listen for ourselves and see how well it tallies up with Stefan's reasonable explanation. Let's have a listen to Stefan calmly giving Tom some impartial advice. This is the scenario that you know deep down, but it's not conscious probably yet. Your mother met your father when they were young. She knew that this guy had sick and disgusting rages before she married him, probably after the first date. And then she said, okay, I'm going to marry to this guy who's got, who's a bully, who's got irrational rages, who's kind of psychotic. Well, guess what? Everybody has bullying tendencies. Everybody has irrational rages. Everybody can be psychotic in certain circumstances. So it's not like there are people who are just a bully or people who are just psychotic or just people, just irrational or just raging. Right? Different situations will bring out these traits in all of us. But I do think that what Stefan does here is completely irresponsible. Like who's dangerous, who's violent, and this and that, right? And now what am I going to do? I'm going to give him children. This sick son of a bitch who's a bully, who's psychotic, who's insane, who's violent, who's terrifying. Who and the only thing Stefan knows about this person is from what he's told by Tom who's destructive, who screams at cats. I'm going to have sex with him. I'm going to carry his children. I'm going to have his children. And I'm going to give him... The so I don't think cutting off family members is always a wrong thing to do. In certain circumstances, that is the, the only sane decision. The children. So it's not that she failed to protect you from the devil. She created you for the devil. She created you for this guy. She delivered you to him. Okay, I think this is heinous, what Stefan's saying here. Him. If I sell my wife into slavery, is it that I failed to protect her? No. I sold her into fucking slavery. Does that make sense? It does. I don't feel sad now. I just feel completely angry. Right. That's good. Mothers create that because mm -hmm. they choose these guys and... Well, it's like talk radio. I, I enjoy Dennis Prager's show, but I would notice over the years, whenever I'd listen, I'd emerge from it angry. And so the whole business model of talk radio and right-wing punditry in general is to breed anger. So people, they tune into the show feeling sad and they'll leave feeling angry. Sometimes it's better to feel angry than sad. Most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, anger is self-destructive and socially destructive. And they breed with these guys and they hand their children to these guys. And then they say, I was the victim here. Does this sound like the right way to speak to a vulnerable teenager? The College of Psychologists of Ontario, Canada would say no. A disciplinary panel from their organization ended up reprimanding Stefan Molyneux's wife, Christina Papadopoulos, because despite being a professional therapist, she joined Stefan on his podcast to have similar conversations to the one you just heard with his callers. In 2014, Joe Rogan had Stefan Molyneux on his show, 
And in the finest moment of his career, Rogan directly challenged Molyneux about the shady nature of his advice to callers on his podcast. But I think that when people hear that, this uh, idea of cutting people off, defooing, as you call it, mm. cutting people off, it makes them nervous. Why? Because that's no, no, why? the I principal this, this directive no, of cults. It's not. It's not. That's otherwise, not a principal no, directive no, of cults? No, because otherwise, your life? no, no. Isn't look, it, though? But no, listen. Isn't do that, you think? Though? Let me ask you this, Joe. Do you think that a woman who's being abused by her husband should stay or leave? This, but this practice of defooing. There's no marriage that, that that could not some aspect of it be labelled as abuse, right? So, so uh, uh, violence in Australia is now being defined for, to get a restraining order against someone. They don't use the term restraining order, but. Uh, Australian federal legislation to try to reduce domestic violence has come to define violence as you know negative words like belittling words it is now defined as as violence so abuse is just so incredibly amorphous it could mean yelling at someone or using sarcasm on someone all right um this is i mean it's pretty widely criticized right i mean your wife got in trouble for this for advocating this on your or in your show, right? No, she didn't. No, didn't she get suspended? Didn't she nope. have no? Nope. None of that is true. It's so that's just lies. She it's um, online. Yeah, none of it is true. She was never suspended. Her practice continued. They had some questions about the podcast, and in the end of it, they said, "Listen, we thought that maybe you had been given advice without giving a full." Um, so he's simply not telling the truth here. He's consistently slippery and uh, dishonest. That doesn't make his overall character slippery and dishonest. But in certain situations, when he gets put a tough question, he seems to default to slipperiness and dishonesty. And I'm not above that. When I get into some tough situations, my immediate reflex is to be dishonest. So I get that. I do the same thing. Uh, psychological question or workout. The, the, the quote that I had wrote and written down was that she had been told her statements were... Uh, in support of defooing are not supported by current professional no. or consistent with... Uh... That was in the complaint. The final result was that uh, defooing is perfectly consistent with best psychological practices. So this was just in the complaint. So people are taking this out of context. Can you believe it? Something Crazy. on the internet is being taken Well, that's out of very context. illuminating then. That makes people feel a lot better. So Stefan said that this article from the Globe and Mail was mischaracterizing his wife's court proceedings. So just to be absolutely positively certain about this, I went and found the official public court record from her hearing, which says, and I quote, The member, Miss Christina Papadopoulos, hereby formally admits the following facts. The member made general statements and provided advice both in general terms and directed towards particular individuals that are not supported by current professional literature or consistent with the standards. The member agrees and admits that she failed to maintain the standards of the profession, provided a service that she knew or ought to have known was not likely to benefit the client and has engaged in conduct or performed an act that, having regard to all the circumstances... So everybody in your life is capable of being abusive. I had one girlfriend who I would yell at a number of times, probably fewer than fewer than 10 total, but I'm embarrassed by the number of times that I did yell at her. And why out of all my girlfriends did I yell at her? There's just something about her that just kind of enabled it. And so we 
play a, we often play a significant role in how other people treat us. So whether or not it's some drunk guy calling you up and wasting your time at work, you can cut that off and you can put them in their place. We have a profound effect on other people. We don't control other people. We have an effect on them. So much of the abuse that we receive or don't receive is due to our own choices or our own character. Would reasonably be regarded by members as disgraceful, dishonorable or unprofessional, contrary to the professional misconduct regulation. And then at the end, it says clearly that she admitted the allegations and the panel found her guilty. Oh, none of that is true. It's So that's just lies. She, it's um, online. Yeah, none of it is true. The final result was that uh, defooing is perfectly consistent with best psychological practices. The most fascinating thing here is just how calmly Stefan Molyneux lies. There's no hesitation, no signs of thinking through the implications of what he's saying, knowing that there's a public court record which everyone can view. When caught out, he immediately alleges that other people are the ones telling lies about him. But you know what? This was a great podcast. Joe Rogan's viewers were given a unique insight into Stefan Molyneux's character because Rogan, on this day, had the level of rigor that we all hope to see from good interviewers and was brave enough to ask difficult questions aiming to get to the bottom of things. Dave Rubin's viewers weren't so lucky. On the Rubin Report, when Stefan is speaking about this topic of cutting off ties with family, the facts of the way he does this on his show and his turbulent history with regulatory councils are never mentioned to the viewer. And what we see instead is Stefan doing his Mott and Bailey routine. Putting So virtually everything Timber on Toast is saying here, I agree with. I think these are excellent critiques, both of Dave Rubin and of Stefan Molyneux. ...forward a series of common-sense statements that nobody disagrees with and claiming them to be proof of the legitimacy of the practices he advocates for on his show. This was part of the feminist revolution, right, where they said, if you are with an abusive man, you should get out. It's your father's birthday. You have to call him. It's like, well, he beat me up every day of our childhood. <laughs> Do I? Molestation, rape, uh, violent abuse, you know, massive neglect and so on, right? You chose this man. You have to stay married to him, even if he's drunkenly beating you every night. You know, regarding the cult thing, I mean, okay, so are people saying that the family, you can't leave? <laughs> you know, that, that's a little cult. That seems like, okay, you can't leave. I, I agree with you. Once you're an adult, you have every right to manage your relationships as you see fit. There's one specific thing to hone in on here. Stefan really labors the point that he always advises people to talk things through with their parents and try to fix the relationship before taking the drastic step of cutting them off. I think you should sit down and talk with people and try and reason things out and so on. Well, I think... And uh, Josh Randall says this narrator sounds like a feminist cuckster. He, he may sound that way. I think he's very reasonable and I think he's making some sharp critiques. So the substance of what he says is more important than how he says it. Talk to them first. Yeah. Right? I mean, you don't just hit that. I have this sort of rule I don't tell people what to do in the show. I think try and talk to people in your life. But I think it's important you sit down, you talk about if you've had a difficult history with your family, your parents, sit down and talk. So often my sponsees ask me for advice and I try to never, almost never give advice beyond you know, study the big book, do your, do your assignments, do your homework, uh, go to meetings. But uh, sometimes I'll just make a, a straight comment and then they'll refer back to it weeks down the line as, you know, I followed sponsors' advice. I followed sponsors' guidance, meaning me. And I'm like, ah, that, 
I, I try to now bracket, like when I'm about to give a, an opinion on something, it's like, this is not sponsored direction. This is just me mouthing off. About it with them. And, and, you know, if they want to go to therapy or if they want to try and find ways to resolve it, so much the better. What can be repaired should be repaired. If you can use the good memories as a way of hooking the relationship to a better place, fantastic. In the audio we have of Stefan's conversation with Tom, there's a particular moment where Tom expresses sympathy for his mum and says that he can feel his anger with both his parents fading away. This would seem like an ideal opportunity for Stefan to practice what he preaches and advise Tom to try and reconcile with them. But Stefan doesn't do that. Do you mean looking at their childhood, seeing why in a deterministic way they do that? No, I don't, uh, I, because then what happens is you fall back into sympathy, right? Exactly. Yeah, that, I can, uh, I can uh, even uh, feel the anger fading now yeah, when I no, think about they that. They made the fucking choice. They made the choice to meet and to breed and to... Hmm. They didn't fail to protect their children. They threw their children into a... So like many right-wing talk show hosts, he, Stefan here, is trying to rev up the anger. Like the kid was in understanding and sadness and Stefan's trying to move him into anger. Lion's den. Right? And then ate mm. some fucking popcorn when the children got mauled, right? This is why I say to people, if your parents are evil, ditch them. Now let's move on to Stefan's views on race. Okay, so we've talked about the family, and that's one of the things people find controversial about you. I think really, though, the one that you didn't mention is the race and IQ stuff. Mm. This is something you, you dive... So what's the general rule for the type of people you should get close to and the type of people you should distance from? So... Generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of cutting people off. It's just too dramatic. And there are lots of ways of distancing or getting closer. So you re you can reduce the frequency, the intensity, the proximity of your interactions. Or if you want to get closer to people, you increase the frequency, the proximity, and the intensity. So kind of dial people up and dial people down in your life. I think that, generally speaking, works better. So instead of cutting people off, sometimes it's better just to reduce contact. Now, overall rule, good people make you feel good, right? People that make you feel good, you know, dial them up in your life. People that make you feel bad, dial them back in your life. Good people make you feel good, bad people make you feel bad. That's, that's my rule for whether I want to bring people closer or push them further away from me into a lot mm. and i think people think that there is somehow a racist element to it mm. so i don't want to put any words in your mouth so do you want to make your basic argument around race and iq but it's not a personal thing like I, this is not an idea i have come up okay with. so this not is not your right. idea it's not like i'm glad you countered with that because yeah, in a way my, my question not, accidentally yeah. was almost a setup so yeah, yeah. I'll, so i'll take that i mean just just i'm straight up about all of this like this is one of the most difficult facts I've ever had to absorb in my life, but I found... So a lot of people who think there's a significant connection between race and IQ, they try to use what Stefan just did to re, you know, reduce the, the social toxicity of their position. And it's just trotted out so much, and I just don't think it works, right? So either there is a connection between race and IQ, or there isn't. Like, either you're dedicated to truth, or you're not dedicated to truth. And how you feel about it, I don't think really it matters that much. I don't think I spend a great deal of time crying about reality or feeling bad about reality. I try to have a positive relationship 
with reality. And almost nothing harder to absorb than this question of differences in IQ between groups. And this goes back many, many decades. Uh, this was talked about by Hernstein uh, and Murray, of course, in the Bell. And uh, the chat says, Stefan Molyneux here sounds like Charles Manson. You did this to your children. I took them in. Yeah. in. In 94. And nobody's been able to overturn that. And their basic argument is to say, look, blacks make less money than Ashkenazi Jews. But if you normalize by IQ, they don't. Stefan talked about Murray and Hernstein's book, The Bell Curve, published in 1994. If you want to learn more about this book and its conclusions, I would thoroughly recommend that you go watch this video by Forever James's? Forever Jamesies? Anyway, it's dope as fuck. You owe it to yourself to go experience this guy's videos. He's great. I'll drop a link in the description. We're going to keep our focus specifically on Stefan's Rubin Report interview and the way he uses the bell curve's findings to justify his own beliefs about race. The Bell Curve is, for the most part, a book which presents empirical data from armed search. Look, if you wanted to debunk the Bell Curve, you wouldn't really do it in a video. You'd do it in a scientific paper, and there haven't been any scientific papers debunking the Bell Curve. And I severely doubt that there's any new information in that video about the Bell Curve reading the right. ...service vocational battery tests to show observable links between race and IQ. However, it's also a book with a specific political... Okay, so race and IQ is only one small part of the book, The Bell Curve, and the policy agenda section of The Bell Curve is less than 1% of the book. So this is a dishonest representation of The Bell Curve. Angle. Murray and Hernstein leverage their findings on IQ to argue that corrective social policies like affirmative action, which aim to create equal opportunity for people of color, have exhausted their usefulness because they will never solve the fundamental problem of inherent cognitive differences between different racial groups in our society. Stefan appears to wholeheartedly buy into both the scientific and political arguments put forward by the book, and he is keen to constantly emphasize how the foundations of his beliefs are firmly rooted in data, science, and empirical evidence. You know, and it's funny because the left is always complaining about, and I'm neither left nor right, but the left is always saying anti-science. People are anti-science and so on. This is science. It's a very close correlation to where people end up. And Jonathan Haidt makes this point, both the right wing and the left wing deny parts of science. So the left wing denies uh, group differences, or racial differences, and uh, the right wing, according to Jonathan Haidt, denies uh, climate change. So there are all sorts of areas where the left wing denies science, and there are all sorts of areas where the right wing denies science. And nobody knows how to change disparate ideas. I want to solve problems in society. I want to fix things in society. And I don't, for the life of me, I cannot understand how we fix things by ignoring facts. We're both submitting to this third party mm -hmm. called reality, truth, reason, evidence, right? And that way, you and I can meet in reality, and we can both subjugate our will to power according to an objective standard. Scientists do it, mathematicians do it, engineers do it all the time. There's a third standard called, a third party called reality, objectivity, scientific method, whatever, right? So Josh Randall says, I found the bell curve to be tedious. I didn't find it tedious. It was not uh, easy sledding. It wasn't super difficult. It was... It was a demanding book, and I remember I read much of it in synagogue. So while everyone else around me is delving, like I'm delving to the bell curve, like I'm swaying back and forth along with everyone else, and uh, you know, making my way through Charles Murray, Richard Ernstein's uh, The Bell Curve. That was my way of getting closer to God. Don't, don't judge me, bro. And we have lost that third standard. 
However, somewhat ironically, Stefan says some stuff in this interview which demonstrates that perhaps he isn't subjugating his own opinions to reality. Here's an assertion that he makes about the Head Start program, a government-funded initiative which aims to reduce the education achievement gap between people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Nobody knows how to improve it at the moment. That's the challenge. You know, you get this Head Start program. What do they pour? $100 billion into trying to close the black-white achievement gap and with no effect. A few little bits at the beginning and then it all generally tends to fade away. Here are some charts showing NAEP data on the black and white achievement gap since the 1970s, based on tests completed by 9, 13 and 17 year olds in maths and reading. As Stefan points out, drastic gains were made in the early years of the Head Start program, followed by a period of decline where progress completely stalled. This is when the bell curve was released, and the writers made specific allusion to this stalling of progress. It's also, very interestingly, where Stefan chooses to end his analysis of the data. But that's not where the data stops. You know, 30 years have gone by since then. Let's reveal the data from 2000 onwards, and you see that after fluctuating, the gap continues a gradual decline once again, hitting its lowest standard deviation level to date in 2010. More NAEP data was recorded since then, and as you can see, the achievement gap continues to narrow. This suggests to me that Stefan, despite his insistence on the importance of not willfully ignoring empirical evidence... Okay, so the gap has narrowed modestly. It has narrowed a little bit. It has not narrowed dramatically. Right? It's not narrowed by 25%. It's, uh, it's narrowed by about 5% has been using data he got from a book he read in the 90s to justify his convictions about the education gap between blacks and whites being an unfixable fact of life almost 30 years later. Given his investment in this topic and his constant reaffirmation of the importance of evidence in reality, it's surprising to me that he wouldn't have bothered to check up on this. However, like with Tommy Robinson, the issue with the Stefan Molyneux-Rubin report interview lies not just in what is said, but also in what is omitted. Towards the end of the race and IQ conversation, there's a notable change of pace, where Stefan starts using some very poetic and flowery language, painting an apocalyptic vision of society tearing itself apart and destroying itself, and he vaguely hints at there being a solution to all of our problems that nobody wants to accept. I find that the plight of, and it's not just a black community, but the, the plight of communities uh, around the world and, and in the Western countries is dire. And we are currently tearing ourselves apart as a society, looking for the scapegoats mm -hmm. for these group differences. And the science is very clear at the moment about what the, what the problem is. But if this is like our big thing and we are screaming and turning over stones and screaming racism and destroying people's lives and, and massive government programs designed to, to fix everything and, and propagandizing children that their entire history and tearing down statues, everyone's a racist. I cannot understand how we're going to ignore things, how we could, we could solve anything by ignoring facts. Maybe there is a fix. Maybe there is something that can be done. I'm sure there is something that can be done. He never actually goes as far as to say what could be done. However, I would venture that anyone who's a regular viewer of Stefan's videos on YouTube would have a pretty good idea of what he's getting at here. I can't help but think, Jared, that if I lived in a society of white people, then the giant fly swatter of shut up whitey, you're racist could never be used against me. 
we could actually have debates about ideas rather than ethnicities. We could actually have debates where reason and argument could win. I think I can understand certain perspectives where people say, well, if we're so terrible as white people, we should really leave you all alone, right? We should just withdraw ourselves to our own areas and we should just separate because this is not working. Because you can't live together like that. When you have oppositional mindsets, oppositional ethics, oppositional definitions of what it means to be a human being. You understand? So white people, I'm guessing, at some point, they're going to say, you know what? He's not working. It's not working. You want our own space. It's clear that Stefan is someone who desperately yearns for a whites-only ethno-state. He advocated this position far more explicitly in a documentary he did after attending a white supremacist rally in Poland. But of course, according to Dave Rubin's astringent rules on what we can't possibly hold him accountable for, I'm not allowed to use that. So I've been careful to only use clips from videos that were published before Dave interviewed Stefan. And this is really just the tip of the iceberg. Pick any white supremacist talking point and Stefan will have regurgitated it in about 5 million different ways on his channel. He argues that the white race is dying out. Um, does anyone imagine that uh, when whites are the minority in their own countries that uh, the new majorities are going to treat them with the same delicacy and care and concern that whites have treated minorities? I mean, no, nobody could possibly imagine that. All you have to do is look at what's happening to the white minority in South Africa and the Boers and the murderers and the slaughterers. Uh, diversity plus proximity equals war. Yes, yes. This, and- is, this is what it means. He argues that colonialism was a virtuous and noble thing. The... Sometimes diversity and proximity equals war. Plenty of time it doesn't equal war. Plenty of times there have been multiracial empires, multi-religious empires. So sometimes diversity, proximity equals tragedy. Sometimes it equals prosperity. The goal of a lot of colonialism from the Western powers, it was called the white man's burden, which is like, wow, we, we happen to come across all of these wonderful things or discover all of these wonderful things or inherit all these wonderful ideas. It was not perfectly executed, of course, but the goal was to go out and share the goodies with the rest of the world, to to go to India, to to go to... The goal wasn't to share the goodies with the rest of the world. That was maybe a minor goal. The goal was exploration and advancement and power. Human beings have complicated motives. Africa to go to other places, China, and to share these goodies with the rest of the world. If there is any group, I would argue, any group that should be least criticized for the institution of slavery, it would be white Western European Christians. He argues that life for black people was better when America had segregation and Jim Crow laws. And what I find particularly frustrating about this is that, you know, like, like all good people... Well, it was probably better for some and worse for others. Uh, I want to see all communities flourish and be peaceful and do well and have stable families and get educated and, and be successful. I think that everybody wants that. And that was actually the trajectory of the black communities in America sort of post-Second World War up until about 1965. Not that, of course, that anything was perfect, but, you know, the black incomes were rising. The black family was relatively stable. You had uh, illegitimate. Well, either that's true or it's not true. And uh, there is some evidence in the direction of what Stefan's talking about. 
legitimacy at about 20% as opposed to the 73 or 74% that it's at now. You had lots of blacks coming into the middle class, getting better education and so on. And then in the 1960s, just things went kind of really haywire. When you look at all of Stefan's talking points as a whole, it's patently obvious that race and IQ isn't just a line of isolated academic inquiry for him. It's the core building block of a belief that black people are culturally and genetically inferior to white people, and that all the past wrongdoings of white people can conversely be explained away due to their inherent virtue. The white supremacist talking points come thick and fast in every video, and it's baffling to me how public figures like Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson can reconcile their propping up of an individual who is this deep in the source with their supposed commitment to fighting for a more equal Western society. In a podcast with Douglas... Uh, deep in the source. So either Stefan is logically and factually right or it's logically and factually wrong. Murray, Sam Harris highlighted the problem of these friendly one-on-one -on -one discussions with Molyneux. This is something I've been wanting to talk to you about. It's really the same problem and this falls very close to home because it relates to you directly and, and, and to really anyone in our line of work making comments such as we do. So take the interview you did with Stefan Molyneux. I don't know if you recall that, oh, yeah. but as I watched that recently. Now, Stefan is a prominent YouTube commentator. He's got a, a big online following. He's constantly hurled at me by his fans or mutual fans as someone I should talk to. And he is someone who I've avoided because I have, I have decided that his connections to actual racists and crackpots are too direct for me to be comfortable to talk to him but now you either thought differently or just don't know as much about him as i do and so you had a perfectly congenial conversation with him i thought i'm a yeah. conversation yeah and there were there were a few glimpses of of his fascination with race that came out in that conversation which you right. didn't pick up on or didn't react to is it okay to be fascinated by reality is that all right is that is it all right to be fascinated by truth? Is it all right to pursue truth wherever it leads, even if it makes some people uncomfortable? At one point, he he dropped on you. Well, you know, and what do you do about the fact that the average IQ in Africa is 70 or something? And you just, you know, took the other end of whatever point he was making and, and kept going and didn't comment one way or the other. And just one click away, I can find Stefan. So either the average IQ in Africa is approximately 70 or it's not. It's not a moral question. It's a factual question. What does the evidence suggest? Where does the evidence lead us? Having a perfectly congenial conversation with Jared Taylor, who I, I don't know if you know who Taylor is, but Taylor is just a straight up racist white supremacist, as far as I can tell. I will be faulted for not talking to, to Stefan by many people who are who are listening, but I can see what was wrong with you talking to him. And this is where we get into the guilt by association thing that everyone's going to have a slightly different take on. But for a perspective that most closely aligns with mine, I'm going to tag in Destiny. The way this is kind of like this is the big like d dividing thing that I'm old enough now to realize and other people need to realize. And, and, you know, people told me this before and I was too young or stupid to understand it. But basically things happen whether or not you want them to. You have. Okay, that's a great point, right? Things happen whether or not you want them to. I agree with Destiny there. You have to understand that when you platform somebody, you can't just go, I'm just bringing them on to chat. You know, if somebody, you know... Platform, 
I don't remember. Were we using the term platform 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago? It's such such a slippery, dishonest word. Like if you interview someone, you're, you're platforming them for your you know 15 live viewers. Like can't you speak to people? Can't you interview people? Are there only certain permitted uh, opinions? Gets, you know, persuaded to their side. That's not my problem. No, that's a reality of, of the world. That If I interview a Nazi and someone gets persuaded to the side of Nazism, that is not my problem. That is not my fault. Right? People have autonomy. Right? I don't believe in this zombie bite theory of information where if you interview a Nazi, then a whole bunch of people are going to become Nazis if they listen to it. There's no evidence for that perspective. There's no evidence that just uh, watching a video or reading a book sends someone, sends a large number of people proportionally, you know, off in a completely unanticipated direction. That we live in. If you bring on somebody that's going to preach a hateful ideology and you don't question them on anything. If you bring on someone who's going to preach a hateful ideology, if you stand for anything, there's going to be hate there. Right. Hate is simply the flip side of love. If you love something, love someone, you will want to protect that thing or that person. Right. And anything that threatens that which you love, you are going to hate. That's the only normal human reaction. Then you are giving implicit approval to it and there will be. You're not giving implicit approval to it. Like uh, when the news shows you know, some mass murder in Christchurch, is the news giving implicit approval to it? When uh, the news tries to figure out why Osama bin Laden launched an attack on the United States on 9-11, is the news giving implicit approval to the 9-11 attack? That's absurd. People that are persuaded to that side. Now, whether... Yeah. Let's say I interview a Nazi. One person out of 100 might be persuaded to that side. And just as likely, five or ten people out of that 100 may think, hey, this is a really you know heinous ideology. I need to do more to combat it. So... Destiny is talking only about those who are persuaded to this side. But then what about all those other people who are persuaded to pay more attention to fighting that side? Whether or not you want to acknowledge it is whatever. That's up to you for how much integrity you want to have. But you can't just pretend that this reality doesn't exist. And so Destiny says the only reality is that you know someone may be persuaded to a side that he doesn't agree with. But what about all the other people who are shored up in their opposition to that side? Or people who were on the fence, and now, thanks to your interview, they have switched against that side. But Destiny is only focusing on those who are persuaded to a point of view he detests. So, you know, like, insofar as, like, um, insofar as Ruben saying, well, I'm just getting the ideas out there, it's like, okay, well, what, what do you personally think is morally acceptable? You know, do you have any moral values, or do you have anything that you feel, you know, strongly in? You know, do you think, you, you I, Ruben is gay, right? You know, would you platform somebody that legitimately thinks that gay people should be executed and not question them on anything, but just kind of like cheerily let them give their point of view, and then, you know, kind of laugh and smile and then have them off, knowing that there are people watching that program who will go and investigate their content later and think that maybe they're okay? I, I mean... That's your responsibility. And yeah, what about all the people who watch your interview and then decide that that point of view is not okay, who are then shifted? Destiny talks as though people can only be shifted in one direction, where if you interview someone you know, bad, then more people will become bad. Whether you like it or not, you have a responsibility as a public figure to some degree of the public discourse. And it doesn't matter if you accept that or not. It's just a reality. You get an inkling in the Ruben Report interview that Dave is aware of the inconsistency between the way Stefan is putting forward views on his show 
compared to the way he does it on his own channel. Well, I just want to pause you for a second because it's interesting you're describing it as heartbreaking and struggle because that's what I was going to ask you is that because you do talk about this stuff, um, I was going to ask you, are you troubled by it? And, oh, it's because I don't know that I've gotten that exactly yeah. through your videos. So Dave, pin that down with a question. You watched Stefan's videos and you didn't get the impression that he was coming from a place of compassion with this race and IQ stuff. So there's a mismatch here. A so I probably listened to a total of uh, 90 minutes of Kenneth Brown in, in my entire life. And maybe two hours max. An area where you could do some further questioning to fill the gap. For the benefit of your audience who wants to understand how Stefan thinks, you could try and get to the bottom of this. But, of course, instead of that, Dave turns this into another opportunity for Stefan to further eulogize about what a compassionate human being he is. But I obviously haven't seen everything that yeah. you've done on this. So hearing you frame it in that way is actually different than the, a bit of the impression I had of you on this. Oh, do you know how much I would give Dave to, to know that it was just racism? The following year, Dave served us up another plate of muddled excuses to justify his interview with Stefan Molyneux. The other interview which people were upset by was my chat with Stefan Molyneux. Stefan is heavily focused on race and IQ, which is not a discussion I'm a pro at, nor one that I care to focus on that much. Actually, I asked him this very question during the interview. What is it about race and IQ that you feel the need to talk about it so much? His answer, in essence, was that he talks about it because he finds it so troubling. His answer is for you, the viewer, to either accept or reject. Perhaps I could have poked or prodded in another way, but I felt trying to figure out why he thinks as he does is what my job is. The problem with this explanation, which may have already occurred to some of you watching, is that Dave's interview exposed absolutely nothing about why Stefan thinks the way he does. Stefan was completely in control of the conversation throughout the hour slot that he had, and only revealed to the audience exactly what he needed to in order to sell himself. Okay, that's it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.